Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Off with the weeping mothers, the lost fathers, and the forsaken children, and let them come quickly, for a voice of crying is heard out of Zion. For we are greatly confused, but death has come into our ghettos to cut off the young men and women from the streets of Philadelphia, New York, L.A., Georgia, Ohio, Florida, Mississippi, and throughout America, South America, the Caribbean islands, Africa, Asia, and all over the world. So return unto me, thus saith Yah, and I will return unto you, O my people. to time for an a awakening on black talk media back talk radio network 
new media for the new millennia. This is a history and current events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary because Hosea 4.6 states my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. But we as a people can turn this around. Proverbs 4.7 states wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your host, Brother Elliot, Brother Reggie, and Brother Ralph. The number to reach us tonight to join the conversation is 215-253-7263. That's 215-253-7263. The listen-only line, if you don't have computer access, access to a smartphone or iPad or any other device, is 559-726-1300. That's 559-726-1300. And that access code is 958590 and pound. Again, that access code is 958590 and the pound sign. We're streaming live at two locations. You can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening again that's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening and listen live from there or if you on your device if you have the tune in app which comes with a lot of different devices it's a free app you can download the tune in app and go to the search engine and type in time for an awakening there you'll see the icon and you can listen live from that point that's time for awakening on tune in. Drop us an email at time for an awakening at gmail.com. It's time for an awakening at gmail.com. Time for awakening also has a fan page on Facebook. Just go to the Facebook search engine and type in time for an awakening. There you always see interesting content being posted daily by Brother Ridge. Before you leave that page, just hit that like button. That's time for an awakening radio program with a fan page on Facebook. Tonight, we're scheduled to have a special guest join us, author, professor of law, filmmaker, and activist. Professor Bernadette Atuhene will be joining us this evening to talk about her book, We Want What's Ours. It's talking about uh, the land situation in South Africa and uh, we'll set things up and speak to our guests after a brief word from our sponsors. Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and, and our enemies. <laughs> Everybody is here. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com.
All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years. Located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services. Representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies. Offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening. Sundays, 7 p.m., with your hosts, Elliot and Reggie. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. And before we get started this evening with our guest, Brother Reg, any community announcements, anything of that nature? Yes. The one million conscious black voters and conscious contributors will be having an initiative in Philadelphia will be a, a meet and greet information session on Sunday, May 3rd, 2015. That's next Sunday, May 3rd, 2015, from 1 to 3 p.m. Please come out. The location will be the Universal Negro Improvement Association, the UNIA building, located at 1609 through 1611 Cecil B. Moore Avenue, Philadelphia, PA, 19121. Anyone that wants additional information, please contact Marcus Jackson. Uh, you can contact him at 404-759-7490 or Brother Richard White, 215-370-8095. Also, if you want additional information, please go to the website, www.imoneofthemillion.com. You can read some information on there. Sign up, and while you're on there, you can purchase a T-shirt to help finance the movement. Thank you. Tonight, our special guest uh, from IT, IIT, Chicago Kent College of Law, Professor Bernadette Atuheni, is a author, professor of law, filmmaker, and activist. When apartheid ended in 1994, 87% of South Africa's land was owned by whites, although they constituted less than 10% of the population. 2014 marked South Africa's 20th year of democracy, with the state has transferred less than 10% of the land from whites to blacks. Professor Antoheny's book, We Want Was Ours, addresses this issue along with others, and I want to thank her for being with us this evening. Professor Altani. Hello. Thank you for the invitation. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I'm well. I, I, I didn't uh, mess up your name, did I? It was a fine try, Henry. It's, it's, it's fine. You got it. <laughs> okay. I'm glad that you joined us. You're here on Time for Awakening with Brother Reg. 
and also Brother Ralph. Good evening, Professor. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening, sir. Before we get started with uh, talking about the book and the situation in South Africa, which is uh, strangely similar to other situations in other areas of the diaspora, uh, Professor Artuani, give us a uh, a little brief history about yourself. Okay, well, I am uh, the child of immigrants from Ghana, West Africa. Uh, I was born in, in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, grew up in Los Angeles, California. Um, I began my love affair with South Africa after graduating from law school. I did a clerkship on the South African Constitutional Court. And when I was there, you know, I had traveled quite a bit before, mostly in Latin America, and so I had experienced inequality. But the kind of inequality I experienced in South Africa was unique. Uh, it, you know, it, it's so heavily racialized. Only black people on the streets are walking. Whites are in cars. The level of wealth I saw in South Africa, in Johannesburg, I've never even seen, even in Los Angeles. I mean, the number of lotuses, these luxurious cars. And it's all reflected in the level of inequality in South Africa, is rivaled only by Brazil. Uh, and so that inequality shows up in the day-to-day movings, uh, going on in, in, in Johannesburg. And, uh, at that moment when I was clerking is when I said, you know, this is, uh, kind of something I want to focus my energies on is dealing with this inequality from the perspective of the stolen land that was stolen during apartheid and colonialism. So that's how, who I am and what motivated me to do the work I did. Professor Altiani, before we uh, start dealing with that situation, I want to stop right there because you find a lot of our people here, um, and you said that your parents came from Ghana, they have a disconnect on not only our people in general and and trying to unify to, to, uh, uh, to do anything, but they have a disconnect as far as our brothers and sisters on the continent. Um, a lot of that might might uh, uh, deal directly with leadership, which we'll talk about later on. But give us a little background on your parents, because as a young lady that went to uh, some of the top schools in this country, what gave you the the mindset to to deal with that particular particular issue? If you know what I'm saying, it's hard for some of our people to even want to connect with our brothers and sisters on the continent. And you were from Ghana. You're not even from South Africa. So what mm-hmm. what made you want to say, this is what I'm going to do to help these brothers and sisters? Right. So I grew up in a pan-Africanist household. Okay. Uh, so All right. the, the people in South Africa are no different than the people in Philadelphia who are no different than the people in Ghana, right? Uh, you know, we are we are all part of a unified African diaspora. Okay. My father grew up under colonialism. In, in 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 Ghana, and he went to school in a place in Ghana called Cape Post. And at that time, his school was an all-boys school called Kwame Nkrumah Ideological Institute. Uh, it was a state school run just for boys. And, you know, he was, as a young child, exposed to the anti-colonial movement. You know, uh, he was part of the movement as Ghana became free from colonialism uh, uh, under the British... He got to meet meet Che when he was a a child. And so this kind of love for 
you know, the diaspora was something that was in the household. So it, it, it really, the fact that I'm working in South Africa instead of Ghana, it, it's just like, again, it's no different than me working on the south side of Chicago. It's all the same people. Great. Uh, great. <laughs> you know, I kind of figured you, you would give me a response like that, but I, I kind of wanted to hear it for myself and hear it for the listening audience because it's important that we, I think the educational piece of what you just stated is lost amongst some of our people, the the uh, the family uh, type of uh, knowledge of self and, and uh, knowing that we are all one. Uh, I Professor, agree with you more. Professor Antoinette, uh, uh, before we talk about your book in particular, give us a brief history lesson on how, I mean, we know about apartheid and we've seen the things that's happening and when uh, the apartheid system uh, supposedly fell. But give us our audience a brief history lesson on how the whites acquired a lot of this land. Right. So the Dutch get to uh, what we now know as South Africa in 1657 uh, through a series of aggressions and wars, acquired much of the land uh, in, in South Africa, took it from Native people. Usually the method of taking it was um, allowing blacks who used to be owners of the land in the communal sense, not the fee simple European sense of ownership, um, but usually the chief, you know, was owned collectively. But they had possession and ownership of the land. And what would happen is a, you know, they would give the, the, the uh, Dutch East Indian Company or whoever would transfer the land to a white farmer or a white settler and then render the black occupants as tenants who owed rents now. Uh, they never owed rents before because they were the owner. They owed rents on the land, transforming them into labor tenants. There's lots of different ways. I mean, that's a longer history of how the land was taken. There are lots of different mechanisms. The labor tenancy mechanism uh, is one of many mechanisms. Uh, South Africa becomes a nation in 1910. In 1913, they passed something, which is a very important piece of legisla legislation, called the Native Land Act. And the Native Land Act basically was the first piece of legislation passed by this newly formed nation to formally dispossess blacks. And it ultimately rendered blacks uh, to 13% of the nation. It was first a, a smaller percentage, then by second it was amended to essentially blacks were only legally allowed to own land in 13% of their country. Um, and so that was a very... Um, important law. That's why when South Africa transitions from, from apartheid to democracy in 1994, Section 25 of the Constitution is where we find the land reform mechanisms. And in Section 25.7, the land restitution uh, uh, provision states that anybody who was dispossessed of any right in land after 1913 as a result of a racially discriminatory law or policy is entitled to an equitable remedy. And why, again, they picked 1913 is because that's the year of the Native Land Act, of the Native Land Act. And, if, and, and, and that was the first time this newly formed country passed law to dispossess blacks. Uh, the sad thing is most blacks were dispossessed of their land before 1913, right? Okay. And so many of those people don't have uh, a, a constitutional right to restitution uh, of their lands. So it was a compromise that was made in 1994. We had to do something for the people who were, you know, uh, dispossessed of their lands, um, but there was a compromise made. You know, I, you kind of answered one of my questions because I, I was curious to know why they 
uh, you know, the date of 1913 was thrown around, and I knew that that the, the the Europeans had been there long before that. So what happened to land that was acquired before that? But uh, you just answered it being a compromise. Um, That's exactly right, Professor Antoine. You your your book uh, kind of deals with uh, brothers and sisters that had lost land in urban areas. It didn't really deal with the the uh, the outlying areas where there was a lot of farmland. Am I right? That's exactly right. And the reason why I was a strategic choice, because most of the existing literature on land reform in South Africa is really focused on rural areas. And so there is nothing really talking about urban areas. The problem with that is one-third of the beneficiaries of the land restitution program were, in fact, urban. Yet no one was talking about urban restitution or doing any work about it. And so I strategically focused my book on, on urban for that reason. And when you talk about land reform in South Africa, people always just equate it only with rural. Uh, and, and so it's, a, it's, a, it's an attempt to say, yes, rural, rural is, is, is very important, but there's also people who are uh, dispossessed from urban areas as well that we need to include and make sure not to forget about in, this, in these very important conversations. You know, you stated in one of the uh, clips I saw on YouTube where you were being interviewed, um, you talked about this uh, that you would like to see more than just a reparations type of thing, but a dignity restoration. A- explain uh, what you mean in reference to that. So, so I, I developed two main theoretical concepts in the book. The first is called a dignity taking. And basically that's just to say in certain instances, if I take something from you, the point is at the moment of compensation I should give you that thing back or something equivalent to that thing. But there are certain instances where I take something from you as part of a larger strategy of dehumanization or infantilization. And in that instance, just giving you compensation for a physical thing taken is not enough. Because I robbed you of more than just your physical property. I also robbed you of your dignity. And that's what I call a dignity taking. And the argument is to say when there has been this larger harm called the dignity takings, mere reparations is not enough. Just giving people compensation for physical things taken is not enough. We need a more robust remedy that I'm calling dignity restoration. And that's the process of giving people compensation for physical things through a process that affirms their humanity and includes them as a full and equal member of the polity. Now, one thing I'll I'll make sure to emphasize, in this idea of dignity restoration, people often misunderstand me to say that what we need to give people is just process. And no, it's not just process that dignity restoration is about. Because guess what? You can't pay your rent with process. You can't eat process. What, what I'm saying is giving people property and doing it within these processes that are restorative. So it's about giving phys- you know, material wealth through a process that is restorative. So that, that, that's the idea of dignity restoration. Okay. The, um, the Land Restoration Act that you spoke about earlier in the conversation was the first law passed by the post-apartheid government. Uh, Talk about, because you talk about it in your book, talk about some of the successes and failures of that that land restitution program. Uh, We see that uh, Jacob Zuma, well, uh, I'll let you talk about all that. Yeah, so let me just start with the successes. Anytime I uh, talk to um, anybody, whether in South Africa or abroad, I always start with what went right, because when we talk about the continent of Africa, everybody always wants to talk about what went wrong, focusing on what went wrong. I want to focus on what went right first and set the tone in that way. 
So what went right? Well, what went right is access. Absolutely and positively outstanding job on access. What do I mean by that? People had tremendous access to the land restitution program. Number one, uh, where in most, I study restitution all over the world, not just in South Africa, and most other restitution programs all over the world, world it was uh, it was the um, dispossessed individual or community who was in charge of building the case uh, to say that they were dispossessed and bringing it before the, uh, of the tribunal. In South Africa, because of years of Bantu education and oppression, these dispossessed individuals and communities were in no place to build a, a case on their own behalf. So the Land Restitution Commission stepped in and provided great assistance to people in building their case, doing the research on their behalf, uh, which provided lots of access. The other thing that happened is the amount of evidence that was let in uh, was really tremendous. So again, mostly in other restitution programs throughout, throughout the world, you had to provide a title deed to prove that you once were a member of this bygone community. Of course, that's not possible because we didn't own through title deeds, right? It was communal. It was uh, non-written. Uh, and so what they allowed in South Africa is for oral testimony, baptismal records, farm registers. They allowed in ruins, tombstones, anything, uh, aerial uh, records. They allowed in so uh, such a wide array of evidence people were allowed to use to prove they were once there. They were once there and, 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 and kicked out. Um, so the amount of evidence was another uh, wonderful um, thing that provided lots of, lots of access. And then last, as you kind of uh, mentioned toward the end of your comment, on June 30th of last year, President Jacob Zuma reopened the land claims process. So um, why that's so important is you have to understand that uh, by the cutoff date, the initial cutoff date was December 31st, 1998. And by that time, just under 80,000 claims were filed. That was a disaster. Why? Because as it was, there were so many laws used to dispossess black people. One of the many laws was called the Group Areas Act. And it's estimated that 3.5 million people were dispossessed of their land as a result of this one law alone. And I told you, just under 80,000 people filed claims by the initial deadline, which means millions of people were excluded from their constitutional right to restitution. So June 30th last year, by Jacob Zuma reopening the, the land claims process and allowing the rest of the people who were dispossessed uh, and didn't get a chance to file a claim by the initial deadline, is really providing tremendous access. So the story about who was a you know who had access to this constitutional right is a, is a big win, and I think they, they, there was a lot done properly there. Now, in terms of challenges that the land restitution program had, there were many as well. Um, this could go on for a long time, but I'll just tell you they had challenges in the area of accountability, and they had severe challenges in the area of communication. Those, and, and the third set of challenges were challenges in terms of the size of the restitution awards. So those are the three main areas that I found uh, that there were challenges. And the unique thing about the book is a lot of this, uh, as you can imagine, the discussion about land in South Africa is highly emotive. 
it's emotional. You know, anytime, even if I'm in Thailand and I, and I, I give the fact that, it, you know, in 1994, 87% of the land is owned by whites, although they constitute less than 10% of the population. This is an injustice. You know, it's just an injustice for a person in Thailand can see that as an injustice and get mad about it, right? It, it just And the fact that, again, last year was marked 20 years of democracy and less than 10% of that land has changed hands from whites back to blacks, right? This is something that uh, a lot of people are angry about. It produces a lot of emotions. It's highly unjust. There's an injustice happening. This legacy of apartheid in South Africa is alive and well, uh, and it's an injustice, and it makes people angry. Uh, and so what I try and do with my book is move away from emotion and really try and approach the issue with data. So the book is based on 150 interviews I conducted with people who were displaced from their homes uh, uh, during apartheid and colonialism. And so all of the uh, main findings that I present in the book are the trends that I found over that 150 interviews, and that's what I present in the book. And so, again, it's an attempt to have a, a data-driven analysis of this very important process uh, that occurred, and that's what makes the, the book unique. And I'm glad in your opening comments you noted that the Land Restitution Act is the first act passed by the, by the post-apartheid government, right, signaling its absolute importance to the new democracy. And I think that you can't, it's, you know, I, I can't stress that enough. And so, again, it's a, the book provides this data-driven approach, and I think that's the, um, that's the benefit or that's the contribution. Before we continue down that path, let me go back to something you, you mentioned, uh, Professor Atuhani, and I want you to expand on that. You talked about the Bantu education, and I assume that's part of the educational system there in South Africa, or maybe was a part. What, what exactly is the Bantu education? Well, many blacks were not allowed. Uh, they were given the substandard education. They were educated to become uh, only enough to become maids, or uh, they were educated to 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 match the station in society that the apartheid government had for them, right? Uh, so uh, initially, there was very poor education, but then uh, during uh, you know when when uh, cities started urbanizing and they needed a more black professional class, more opportunities opened up for certain blacks, mostly urban blacks, to become teachers and clerks and, and fill other positions. But for the majority of black people, especially in rural areas, the education was an education for them to become maids. And that, that's all part of the Bantu education system, very explicitly, an education system explicitly intended uh, to funnel blacks into certain, you know, sectors of the economy, the lower sectors of the economy. That's what I mean when I say Bantu education. Okay. Uh, it was a formal policy during apartheid. Professor Antonio, you talked about the the first piece of legislation that was passed by the post-apartheid government was this Land Restoration Act. Um, what has caused, uh, you know, the, the slowness in a lot of this transfer, does the, the ANC have the political will to correct this? I mean, can our people do this? What, what, is, what is causing them to be so slow in this process? Yeah, that's a very difficult question. I tried to answer that question in an um, article I wrote in Foreign Affairs magazine. And my best answer to the question is this, is to say that the – so, so, so the quandary is – let me just go ahead and frame the – 
the problem uh, again. To say that, you know, you have a majority, right, a majority black nation with the ANC, the party of the people in power. So why is it in this situation where there is supposed to be tremendous political will, why can't we still get this thing called reparations or dignity restoration? Why can't we get it done? Right? Why has only 10% of the land changed hands, given the political situation in South Africa? And my best explanation for that is to say that the ANC is politically invulnerable and economically vulnerable. So what I mean by that is to say that politically, the ANC has virtually no significant challenge to its power. Uh, the number one opposition party in South Africa is the Democratic Alliance. And they've only been able to acquire less than 20, you know, about 23, 22% of the vote uh, in national elections. And to be honest, there's really very few black people that are going to vote for the DA. They haven't been able because it's the associated with the former apartheid authorities. And, um, and there have been attempts to have new parties. COPE, there was a, a, a party called COPE that came on the scene. Uh, uh, that came and there was a lot of hope that it might provide a opposition, viable opposition to the ANC, but that party deteriorated. There's a new party on the scene called Economic Freedom Fighters. We can talk about them a little bit later. Um, but they, again, they acquired only about less than 10% of the vote. So the point is, the a when the ANC fails to implement land reform, they are not punished politically for doing that because they're politically invulnerable. There's no viable opposition party uh, uh, for black people to vote for instead of the ANC. But on the other hand, ANC is, is economically vulnerable. What do I mean by that? A great example is when Mandela, the great Mandela, when he becomes president, he comes actually to a meeting in Philly. Your station is in Philly. And he meets with some um, economic, uh, there was an economic meeting where he just suggests he may... Um, he may uh, expropriate mines. And immediately the next day, the Johannesburg uh, uh, Stock Exchange drops, plummets by 5%. So in this kind of, uh, you know, so when, when they make decisions that affect economy, they're punished immediately by withdrawal, foreign direct investment. They're punished immediately through markets, right? The kind of neoliberal superstructure punishes them immediately. Uh, and so that's why you have a situation where this, again, you have a party that's pursuing policies, right, these kind of, uh, 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 you know, they're pursuing policies that um, that are responding to the fact that they are economically vulnerable but politically invulnerable. That's my best explanation for what's going on. Professor Altoani, before I pass the mic and, uh, and get Brother Ridge and Brother Ralph involved, uh, is that real power? for our people if if uh, after the post-apartheid government and things were supposed to have changed hands, the only real thing from what you're telling me that changed hands was the access for some of our people to run for political office. But the economy and the military and other important areas of government still stays in control of whites. 
Well, the military is not under the control of whites. The military is fully under the control. But the economy definitely is up. So lots of people say political apartheid has ended, but economic apartheid still lives on. Okay. But even to say that if economic apartheid still lives on, I think we have to be very careful of saying that nothing has changed. You know, there's been tremendous change on many different levels in South Africa. Economically, there has not been as much change as it sh- there should have been. Uh, but that's we, we the same. We can't ignore the tremendous change that has occurred in many other uh, levels of society in South Africa. Okay, I mean, I'm not to not to say that nothing has changed, but I'm. Uh, I, it's all in relation to that question I asked about the slowness of this process. Is because I think it it might be other hands involved that's that's making the pace slower or obstacles uh, mm-hmm. put in front. And of, I think you, again, as, as I told you, we should come back to this party, this Economic Freedom fighter, Fighters, the EFF in South Africa. And that's exactly the, their party platform, is to say that, you know, there's been lots of change, but where we have seen not enough change, or in their opinion, barely any change, is on economic transformation. And so the number one platform, the number one principle in their party platform is, is expropriation of the land without compensation. And so, you know, and, and so they're, they're, they're a party that's saying we are tired of waiting, right? We are tired. We want what's ours. We are tired of waiting. And we are about to, and we are, we, we are going to go after the property by any means necessary. And in fact, recently, the EFF has, has encouraged people to start just occupying various vacant properties in South Africa. So we can dismiss the EFF, but we'd be, we'd be unwise to do so. Because after just under a year of campaigning, they were able to get about what, I think it was 8% of the vote in the last uh, national election, uh, and, which is significant given that the, the next ranking opposition party that's been in, 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 in operation for 20 years was only able to get 23% of the vote. And in less than a year of campaigning, they were able to get about 8% of the vote. And the other thing you have to be careful with the EFF is that it's a youth movement. It's, 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 it's led by Julius Malema, who's the former president of the ANC Youth League. And when uh, I go to South African campuses, you see red berets everywhere. That's their signature, the red beret of the EFF. So it's definitely a force that must be reckoned with, that it must not be dismissed. Recently they've had some internal turmoil um, but the point is, they are making the point to say that economic transformation has not happened, and we are about to start taking radical action to make sure it does happen. And I think that's the heart of what you're trying to say in terms of, uh, you know, things aren't happening as they're supposed to. And that, that's the same thing that the ESF is, 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 is saying. You know, I, I saw a report uh, that uh, Julius Malema, who you just spoke of, uh, was calling for a lot of the statues and things like that, Cecil Rhodes and others, to be taken down. And if they weren't taken down by the government, they were going to take them down. So I can see what you're saying about the people being dissatisfied. You know, by, in your book and in your work, your documentary work, you talk with the people on the ground, along with people in power. So I know that it's a different sentiment among the quote-unquote grassroots folks than some of the people in power. So you're saying that Malema is appealing to a lot of the uh, is appealing to the minds of a lot of the grassroots people is that they want change now. 
Well, to be honest, he's not even appealing to a broad, I wouldn't say grassroots, I would say it's a youth movement. Okay. Because they, the EFA puts off a lot of people in its aggressive tactics. It, it, it's not speaking broadly to the black poor because of the tactics they use. But it is strongly supported by, by youth, um, is what I would say. Now, when you say the, 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 their tactics, what do you what do you mean? Oh, if you've heard about the, uh, I mean, uh, you know, they shouting down the president in parliament, you know what I mean? Pay back the money when climb line. You know, instead of kind of going by procedures okay. in parliament, they totally uh, reject any procedures and they're just literally shouting down the president in parliament, getting kicked out of parliament. I mean, it's quite a show. It's quite quite theatrical, the tactics that they've uh uh, that they've taken up, and it's put off a lot of older uh, South Africans, I think. <laughs> okay. You know, I can see some of the same type of things. Well, the struggle continues. I'll just put it that way. That's right. Uh, uh, Professor Artuhani, uh the documentary, um, what came first, the book or the documentary? It all came together. So when I was um, – it kind of was organic. So when when I was doing 150 in, these 150 interviews that are the basis of my book, it was basically like cut, conducting a mini Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Because in my interviews, I would start by asking people uh, to tell me how life was before the eviction. I then went to telling me about the day that they were uh, evicted or, 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 or thrown off of their land. Uh, and then I asked them to tell me about the process of getting compensation from the moment they heard about the land restitution process until the moment they got uh, some compensation. And in the portion of the interview where they're talking about the day they were evicted, people cried, and I cried with them, you know, remembering uh, uh, the pain and et cetera. And um, so I thought to myself, well, there were certain stories that were so very powerful, and I thought, you know, as much as we academics like to think people are reading our stuff, they're not. Right, it gets stuck in the ivory towers, and some of these stories I was hearing needed to be heard by the masses, and needed to, right? These these were beautiful stories that needed to be heard um, beyond the audiences that my large articles, my books would reach. And so I, um, there was one story in particular about the Indolella family that I thought was not only a beautiful story that really captured what was going on in South Africa, but it was a, a story that was visually captivating. It's a story of a family who are the proven owners of a plot of land, and uh, the apartheid authorities stole the land from them. They come back, which was a very bold uh, and tenacious thing to do. The apartheid government comes back years later and kicks them off again, and uh, they come back a second time. But before they come back, the, the apartheid government builds homes for middle, for working class blacks on the land they once used to own. So the second time they come back, they have to come back and put up shacks. So you have a, a visual situation where you have the proven owners of the land living in shacks on once they, on land they once owned, surrounded by people in brick and mortar homes, you know, working class blacks. And it just visually to see these people who, again, are the proven owners living in shacks on land they once used to own. Uh, it's just such a visually powerful narrative that I felt that it had to be told on film so people could see this. 
And more importantly, what I was also trying to do with the film is to move the conversation from black and white. Because anytime people think about land reform, the first thing they think about is Zimbabwe, Mugabe, white farmers, you know, black farm workers, rural areas. And what I'm trying to do with my film is to say, well, sometimes it's not black against white. It's black against black, which is what you have it in the film. Sometimes it has nothing to do with rural areas. Sometimes it has to do with urban areas. And so to say correcting the injustices of the past is complicated and nuanced. And any attempt to just make it a black and white thing I think is incorrect. And the film is trying to introduce that nuance and complication, right? And because it, it, and, and if, you're, if you're committed to the truth, the truth is it's not simple and it's not clear many times. And, and so that's the work we're, we were trying to do with the film. And so, and basically how I found the families, again, over the 150 interviews I did, this is, happened to be one of the families that I interviewed. And the day I interviewed them, I, I said to myself, uh-uh, we must do a documentary about this family. And that's how it all started. And you know what? We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, <clears throat> we'll continue this conversation. Uh, we'll get the Brother Reg and Brother Ralph involved, and we'll talk to our guests. Our guests can join us. Uh, 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 the audience can join the conversation at 215-253-7263. That's 215-253-7263. We're joined in conversation this evening with author, professor of law, filmmaker, and activist, Professor uh, Bernadette Atuhene, and we'll be right back. tuned in to the black talk radio network for podcasts and live program scheduling visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com all insurance incorporated an african-american owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years located at 231 southeastern road in glenside pa with other offices in germantown and west philadelphia call now for commercial insurance quotes homeowners insurance quotes automobile insurance quotes notary and tax services representing over 15 major a-rated insurance companies offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote call this number two one Two one five eight eight five two four four four. That number is two one five eight eight five two four four four. Two one five eight eight five two four four four. All Insurance Incorporated.
Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Nobody celebrates victories against racism and apartheid a generation or two back more often or more lavishly than the Congressional Black Caucus. It's something they have to do constantly, not just because some of those victories made their career possible, but because apart from those careers, they have not really accomplished much in the last 40 years. From the 1990s onward, most of them voted for legislation that doubled down on the war on drugs and to intensify the over-policing and mass incarceration in their own communities. When it became clear that Katrina was the excuse to dispossess and disperse into exile a couple hundred thousand black people on the Gulf Coast, the Black Caucus called no hearings. It sounded no alarms. And despite their relentless celebrations of victories over racism, the entire Black Caucus has consistently turned a blind eye to the brutal settler state apartheid of Israel. The CBC's promise to skip out when Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu addresses the U.S. Congress on March 5 is not an act of vision or moral courage. When Israel demolishes Palestinian houses, when it lynches and deports Africans, when Israel passes more discriminatory laws and steals Palestinian land, the Congressional Black Caucus says nothing. When successive U.S. administrations of both parties endorsed the Israeli punishment of Palestinian civilians with water and power cuts, with blockades of medical and construction supplies, books, and even toys, the CBC is silent then too. When Israel threatens all its neighbors with nukes and makes the false claim that Iran has nuclear weapons, the CBC are quiet. When Israeli fighter jets Armored copter gunships and tanks rain white phosphorus and shell fire on Palestinian neighborhoods. The CBC, with the rest of Congress, unanimously endorsed the aggressor's right to defend themselves by murdering children and voted to resupply the expended Israeli munitions. So let's be clear. Netanyahu is a demagogic racist. He heads the planet's most vicious apartheid regime, a U.S.-supported and funded client state engaged in the conquest and occupation of neighboring territories and the genocidal dispossession and exile of their populations, all paid for with U.S. tax dollars and under U.S. diplomatic cover. But that's not the CBC's problem with him or with Israel. Like the rest of the U.S. ruling elite, the CBC has no problem with Israeli apartheid. The CBC's problem is that Republican House leader John Boehner invited Netanyahu not President Obama. So the Netanyahu visit is a violation of protocol, a kind of insult to the first black president. We should not be surprised. The CBC's tunnel vision works the same way at home as it does abroad. Thanks to the large numbers of blacks pushed out of homes in the workforce in recent years, the rate of black child poverty now stands at 38.2%, an all-time high. The Congressional Black Caucus is not calling daily press conferences over that either. Detroit is executing its own slow-motion Katrina, pursuing water cutoffs and evictions that will affect over 100,000 residents 
just about all of them black. And this is beneath the CBC's notice. But let somebody insult or disparage the First Lady, and they'll be all over that. It's because the CBC, like the rest of the black political class, are self-serving cowards. Their failure is symptomatic of the shrinkage of black politics from one of vision and struggle to a politics of protecting their own privilege. For Black Agenda Radio, I'm Bruce Dixon. Find us on the web at www.blackagendareport.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening, and we're joined in the conversation this evening with uh, author, professor of law, filmmaker, and activist, Professor Bernadette Atuhene. Uh, professor Atuhene, before I continue, uh, are you still there? Yes. Okay. All right. Before I continue, let me uh, get uh, Brother Reg, Brother Ralph involved in the conversation. Brother Reg, Brother Ralph? Hey, um, good evening, uh, Professor Atuhani. Uh This is Brother Ralph. Um, and I, I have a few questions I would like to ask you. I want to go back on something that you and Elliot were talking about earlier, the Bantu education. Prior to that Bantu, because I'm starting to see some parallels between this government and the South African government. Prior to the Bantu Education Act in 1953, what was the education uh, system before that act was imposed on the people of South Africa? Unfortunately, I'm unable to answer that question. I'm a property law professor, so I'm focusing on land and land reform. So in terms of the background information I know about education and the history of education, I'm just not well suited to answer that question. I'm just not... Uh, you know, I know the broad strokes, but I, I, I'm just not a historian of education. So, unfortunately, okay. I, I can't give you a, 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 a reliable, good answer for that. Okay. I, I, and I thank you for that answer. Also, I, I wanted to ask you about, you know, you said something a little earlier, and I see the same thing in this country about uh, it's not, it, it, it is a black-white thing, but in the midst of that, blacks are hurting blacks. Is that the same thing that's happening in South Africa at this time? Uh, without a doubt. I mean, definitely race is uh, uh, still a, a very salient issue. But class is, in, in some instances, an even more salient issue uh, in South Africa. And so, um, absolutely, I think that's, uh, you know, those are the, uh, you know, and obviously it's intersectionality and, and also gender. Right. And so, um, yeah, we have uh, three, you know, fights going on on, on all axes. Uh-huh. And, and with these political parties, you know, and, and I was just listening to you and uh, Brother Elliot very carefully with these political parties. Um, you saying you are seeing some progress because I, I'll be honest with you. I, you know, looking at the political parties in this country. I, and I got to go back to what Malcolm X said back in the 60s, uh, where they talk about the house Negro and the field Negro. And I, I, I'm sorry to sound a little bit that blunt, but it seemed like the political party, in my opinion here, is coming back and selling Mr. Charlie's coffee to the people. You know, they're enjoying the good life, the classism, um, just sit there with the president uh, all these different other politicians. At the same time, I, I'm glad uh, Elliot played that clip by Bruce Dixon because it seemed like their, our political party, 
or the one that black people gravitate to have been selling them down the drain, I would say like the last 20, 30 years. And, uh, and when I read up some things on Nelson Mandela, I can't, you know, I, I, I've never been to South Africa, so I'm only going by things I've read. It's almost like the same thing that happened there when, when the ANC took over and Nelson Mandela was put, it seemed like blacks suffered under that even more. And I'm just trying to get a better understanding uh, from you, sister, because you're a little bit more informed than I am. I'm only going by different things that I read. But it seemed like when Nelson Mandela came into power, black folks suffered more in South Africa. Am I correct in my, uh, you know? Yeah, like like all things, it's complicated. So let's look at the. So let's look at the. Let's talk about the legacy of Nelson Mandela. Um, I just wrote a, an op-ed in the L.A. Times uh, in the one-year anniversary uh, of his passing about uh, re-examining the legacy. I believe when he first passed, it was an inappropriate time to talk critically, but I think after one year, it was time to really uh, have some serious conversations about uh, Mandela's legacy. And I think first is we always have to be careful. With many of our leaders, we, you know, lionize them. You know, we... Uh, we deify them. And in that deification, it's a process of dehumanization, right? He's not a god. He's a human, right? And when we make him something other than a human, we're dehumanizing Mandela, you know? And so we, you know, that, and that's what happened. I think that's the same thing with, with Malcolm X, I, with, with, with Martin Luther King, with our leaders, right? We, 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 we deify them. Uh, to some extent, and we, we rob them of their humanity. They're no longer allowed to make mistakes. They're no longer allowed to be human. We need to stop that. That's the first thing. And with Mandela, we, you know, the, the thing is, you know, there was a political bargain made in, 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 in 1994 or leading up to the liberation in 1994 that's all encapsulated in Section 25 of the South African Constitution. Basically, the, what I call the liberation bargain says that whites get to keep all of their land, right? So uh, no matter how they acquired it, the kind of status quo, they got to keep all of their land. That's a huge concession. In exchange for this huge concession, blacks were promised land reform, which is in Section 25.5, .5, .6, and .7 uh, of the South African Constitution. Right. The problem with that bargain is whites got what they got immediately in 1994. They their title deeds. They had, you know, they got to keep their title deeds. Blacks had to wait to get their part of the bargain. And guess what? They're still waiting. And that's the source of the anger. I told you less than 10 percent of the land has changed hands from whites back to blacks. And so the problem with the bar. So many youth and that's why the EFF is gaining amongst the youth. Many people are upset that only one side of the liberation bargain was fulfilled, right? Many people are right. upset about that. And that's why many of the youth feel like Mandela sold the people out. And again, it's not Mandela. He was working within, within a coalition, right? So sometimes we need to, we would just say Mandela as if he was working alone and he's, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, worthy of all the praise and, and, uh, and needs to receive all the criticism. But it was, you know, the, it was the liberation parties in that negotiation. But the, the key thing is, so you can, people can say Mandela sold the people out, but I think that is not the right way to look at this thing. You have to look at the choices that Mandela had in that particular moment. Hindsight is always twenty twenty, But in that particular moment, what was going on was 
you either, you know, it was a liberation bargain, or if you didn't find a negotiated settlement, it was civil war was highly likely. You remember in 1994, 1993, you know, blacks were killing blacks, right? The inter uh, a, a tribal uh, or violence that was going on right before the uh, 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 before the election. There was a lot of violence, and so the point is, it was to avert a civil war, keep South Africa's economy intact, and that's what that's the choice. That's the very difficult choice Mandela and the and the and, and, and the coalition was really faced with. So it was it was it was so to say he sold out the people is really. Uh, 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 you know, failing to look at the choices. It, he, you know, it, what he picked was a lesser of two evils in my uh, in my estimation. He picked the lesser of two evils. There were no good choices. And sometimes we find ourselves in situations where there are no good choices. Right? And we, we need to find a way forward nevertheless. And I think that's the proper way to understand uh, uh, the liberation bargain, the only one side being fulfilled. I don't think looking at Mandela as a sellout is really historic, is embracing the historical reality. Okay, uh, well, right, you right. know, and, and let me ask one more thing. Oh, okay, because like, cool. I want to now, the call. Dutch, the Dutch took that land illegally. Uh, it was unlawfully. So the system is unlawful. And the thing I can't understand is, you know, and yes, Nelson Mandela was the president of a very unjust, illegal system set up by the Dutch. I mean, we got to get that uh, straight, you know, uh, right away. So since the sig- system is illegal. And, so what do you I mean, mean the system is illegal? Well, you well, have the whole constitution. Yes, apartheid. Okay, got it. Yeah, the whole apartheid system. And if, colonialism, if, right. Good. Right. That's illegal. It, I mean, unjust to a black man, and I'm a black man. Now, to a white person or a person that uh, is whitewashed, it might not be. It might be uh, we could put the lesser of two evils. It's an unjust, oppressive system. So, of of course, in 1994, they're going to give the land to white people and forget black people. And they're going to continue doing this. I mean, and, and, and this is just my opinion. I mean, and I, you know, everybody has an opinion. The same way in this country. When when the when the courts ordered that the black farmers get some, get paid, some of those black farm, farmers in this country still are not getting paid. So we're still looking to an unjust system for justice. So I understand the youth getting angry, shouting down the president, taking to the streets, and trying to do something different because people' patience is getting. I mean, it's the same game over and over and over again. And like I said, sister, I mean, professor, this is just my opinion. What I'm looking at, and there's these politicians that they put before us are just telling us how good uh, Mr. Charlie's coffee is, and it's the same game over and over and over again. So I guess the youth are it's like, you know what, enough is enough. We're tired of it. it something has to change. And uh, so I'm glad the youth are starting to do something different. To, uh, and, and even if it's well, a, let me let me say something here. Let yes, me sir. say yes, something ma'am. to yes, say ma'am. that. Um, there's a political scientist at the University of Washington, St. Louis, called Jim Gibson. And while the work I did is qualitative, right, so I spent two hours with people doing interviews, digging deep, he did he does quantitative work. He did the survey, one of the uh, uh, kind of most robust quantitative studies done on land in South Africa to date. He interviewed 3,700 South Africans. 
And he found that 85% of blacks interviewed said that uh, whites stole the land and they have no legitimate claim to the land. But more importantly, he found that two out of every three blacks agreed with the following statement. Uh, uh, you know, uh, blacks need the land no matter what the consequences are for the political stability of the nation. And so those of us who work on land in South Africa, we know this thing is a time bomb waiting to explode. But what Jim Gibson's study did is give us empirical confirmation to that on-the-ground uh, knowledge that we had. So this thing is is a time bomb waiting to explode. And that's why I titled my book, We Want What's Ours, because that's what people are saying. If we don't heed that call, there will be trouble. You know, there will be trouble. And so, But I remain hopeful. I think in round two of restitution, you know, again, we get a second crack at this thing. Round two of restitution has, again, opened up June 30th, as we talked about earlier in the interview. And I think that the stakes are high. We've got to get it right in round two of restitution, right? Because if we don't, then I think that this, um, you know, there's a, there's a, a good likelihood of unrest and political instability. And so, you know, that's the kind of, thought I want to close with is right. to say we've got to get it right. And I think, you know, at, we've, we have to remain forever hopeful. Uh, and there's always, and you know, through work and study, you know, we have to remain hopeful. And I think that, you know, we, we've just got to get it right. We've got to get this land reform thing right. We've got to keep pushing and keep working. Let's go to 404 area code. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Uh, greetings to you, gentlemen. Um, this is Sarah calling in from Dallas. How are you? Oh, uh, I'm not going to tell this lie. So I'm not doing very well. Professor, greetings to you as well, and I'm glad to hear you on the phone. I was told I heard you on Mark Thompson's show at some radio, and I just need to make a few um, quick statements. Um, Reggie Rouseman, um, excuse my bad manners, as well as Elliot, um, greetings to you all as well. Um. Can I, can I speak? Oh, go ahead. Yes. Okay. Um, Professor, are you still there? I sure am. Thank you for calling. Oh, you're welcome. No, this is what I have to say. You were saying that um, Nelson Mandela had a bad hand of the better of two evils. And I always say that there is no such thing as a betterment of two evils. When Nelson Mandela was was incarcerated, and a lot of times our revolutionaries can go into prison and due to the hardship that they're under and the brutality, they tend to come out as, you know, no other way of saying as weaklings, pacifists, integrationists. And unfortunately, when Nelson went in at his prime and he came out and he was negotiating for, uh, for a few years before he was released because he was not on Robert Island this whole time. He was removed from off of Robert Island and he was put somewhere else while he was making this devil's bargain with the clerk. And the thing that I find um, very, very um, nauseating and very disingenuous is that during this whole time when this negotiation uh, was going on, here it is as you, they have whites make up 7% of South Africa, but they control 80% of the resources, the land. And the other 20%. It's supposed to be divided up between the 93% black. For one, um, for one thing, you cannot have a legitimate claim when you come to a land and people are already there in possession of this land. And then now you're going to tell them that they have to um, 
produce evidence to show that it needs to be given this, um, give them back their land. This is ludicrous. It, it is total ludicrous with this land reform situation. Because they shouldn't have to prove a darn thing. All they got to prove is that I, you know, I'm black, and I'm a Zulu, I'm a Kosa, and, I, and this is my land. I don't have to prove nothing to, any, to anybody. The Dutch need to prove that their claim that they were legitimately sold this land that is claiming ownership of. And so, and this, this, you know, you got to bring in Desmond Tutu into this situation as well, because they came together and they, and they cobbled together this student reconciliation mess. Because what are you reconciling to? What are what is it are the people in South Africa supposed to reconcile to? Because the only person who got punished as a result of the of this reconciliation commission were the blacks, because some of them are still incarcerated while. These whites, they get to come out here and lie and, and say that, oh, yeah, I, I, I killed them. And so what? Was um, Dr. Walter Wooten, the one, um, the devil in this whole detail, who was doing all of these killings, this white um, killer that was released a few months ago, after only serving a limited time on playing on black people's emotions by getting them to come to prison and say they forgive him. This is why we are in this mess. Because if you are in an abusive relationship and your abuser is abusing you and you are forgiving them, what incentive is that abuse is given to that abuser for them to stop? You have not given them anything. You are telling these people that you forgive them, but you're still going through this abuse. They have not given up anything. Hello? Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, sorry, my God. The phone dropped, and so I'm just... No, no, I, on the line. I got so I missed you. Oh, okay. A lot of the questions, so you'll have to summarize and repeat for me. Elliot is going to um, in, interpret it because what, in a nutshell, to say is that we black people have been in this um, situation where we want to coexist with our oppressors, and you cannot coexist. In order for you to counteract a system, you have to come up with a system of our own. You cannot try to be a part of a system that is oppressing you and have and is built on the oppression of you. And Nelson or Mandela and the ANC, they've got to take their lungs because they've become bureaucrats just as the blacks over here have done as a part of the democratic apparatus. They are bought into the system. We have all of these black faces in high places, the Eric Holders and the Loretta Lynches and the mayors and the governors and the legislative black caucuses and the congressional black caucuses. But look what's going on. Black people are being killed the same way we were back in the early turn of the century. Instead of it now being on postcards, now you have it on videos and YouTube and Facebooks and Twitters that you can view the brutality. It hasn't changed. It has not changed. And for us to think that you can legislate, put more laws on a book, when you are not enforcing the laws, it's that you cannot legislate behavior. And black people are not going to get nothing out of this system if you try to think that you're going to appease your oppressor by being nonviolent to people who have used violence as a means to conquer and to control you. It's well, not going to work. Let's get a response from our, from our guest. Thank you for your call, Sister Sarah. Thank you. Unfortunately, uh, the call dropped, so I didn't get everything. And uh, then I called back. So oh. if you could just give me a quick sum, because I, I, again, summary of what you were saying, her main point, so I, I know what I'm responding to. 
Well, I, I, I think it kind of uh, dovetailed on uh, what, uh, what you heard Brother Ralph saying. And, and, and it might be the sentiment that you've been hearing on the ground over there in South Africa, that a lot of the people are really impatient and saying that they can't really uh, 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 get any type of justice if they're using the template of their former oppressors. Uh, I, I think that we have to move to yeah, another. So per- let me let me Go ask ahead. about this template uh, issue to make sure we're very you know. So when we moved from apartheid to democracy uh, in 1994. Uh, you know, we have a, a new constitution legally, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a new constitution, an annulment of many of the apartheid era laws. And so it is something substantively different. Is it enough? To have, that's a different question. So it, it, are we working within the same system? You know, maybe it's a different question that has enough been done, right? So I, I just don't think that we are working within the very same system, right? To say that again, it's just, uh, you know, it, 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 it's just an oversimplification, right? There has been lots of change. Has, we can say the change hasn't been enough, but we have to be careful to acknowledge the change that has occurred. Okay. Now, well, I don't, listen, uh, 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 uh. Uh, Professor Antoine, I don't think that anybody's attacking you. I think they're just voicing their no, opinion. No, 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 no. Okay. I know it's not. I'm, I'm, we're all talking about ideas. I'm not taking anything personal whatsoever. Okay. Let, let's go to, because we got one call here and one call on hold. 215, area code 877. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Yes, Brother uh, Tim Overbrook. How are uh, you, sir? Texan of Philadelphia. How are you doing, uh, Elliot? Uh, Great. Good evening to you, Brother Reggie and Ralph, and your distinguished guests. My question is, do she really have faith that through this land, so-called Land Reform Act, that blacks will be able to gain economic control of South Africa because whites, they will fight to the death. They're not giving up anything. And if she does, uh, how do you think uh, it's going to be done? Uh, I don't know if it's going to be done through legislation. Right. I think I think that any, you know, uh, any kind of significant change, uh, you know, even with the Civil Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act wasn't the work of legislators. It was the work of a movement that ended in a piece of legislation. Right. So I think that's exactly what we're going to have to see in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And there is, you know, there, it, it, it's about a groundswell that will lead to some larger changes. So I agree with the caller who's saying, you know, legislation alone an act alone is not going to get the job done. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Right. And in, in the because from what I can surmise, the younger folks, and I can't blame them, they're getting restless, and I really think it's going to, it's going to be a violent situation in South Africa if it doesn't change. Now, my next question is, do you feel, even with the possibility of maybe, if, if it's possible, blacks gaining a cer- certain amount of economic control that, European countries want to step in and, and, and have sanctions towards South Africa as a result of it, even though it's rightfully their land, because that's what I see. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's, that's what so I wait, see. Say, say that one more time. In other words, if blacks began to take control economically, do you feel as though that... And what do you mean, uh, this? so that's, that's the real question. What does it mean to take control? What do those actions no, entail I'm in your I'm mind? Because the devil's in the details. So, like, it depends on how 
you know, what exactly you have in mind to, to really assess what the reaction is going to be. Mm-hmm. You know. So what do you have in mind when you say take economic control? Well, do you have in mind what the EFS is doing, telling people to no, occupy no, the land? I'm just, no, I don't. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just wondering if they can have some form of economic control, will it be difficult to conduct, uh, I guess, economic business with other European countries? And would they, they have hands off South Africa trying to strain them? So they can be even more impoverished because European nations, by any means necessary, when blacks try to gain control, they'll do whatever is necessary to keep control, even if it means assisting the minority white government, like they did to Patrice Lumumba when he tried to keep the economic uh, resources in the hands of the Congo. And I, the white Eisenhower, authorized the hit to get him killed because he was assisting the Belgian nation the minority Belgian nation who so-called gave the Congos uh, their so-called independence. Of course, that was social independence, but not economic dependence, which, of course, is the case here. Uh, if you, you mentioned the Civil Rights Act. Well, yeah, the Civil Rights Act was good, and King did a tremendous job, commendable job, and other leaders of the Civil Rights Movement did a good job, but that was social change. When he began to fight for economic change for black folks, that's when they had to assassinate him. And whites would do anything necessary. When it comes to economics, they're going to fight to the blood. And that's maybe, I hate to say it, we, you know, we try to do the right thing and look towards legislation. But it's like it doesn't seem to be working. So how would you address that? Uh, I think that, you know, in terms of sanctions, so, you know, one of the, like, for, let's look at what's happening in Zimbabwe. So one of the reactions to the the land reform or land grabs that happened uh, in Zimbabwe are sanctions, right, from the global community. Zimbabwe has faced severe sanctions. And so, you know, will that happen uh, in South Africa? I think if, if there is not a process mm-hmm. that follows uh, in South Africa, I think, yes, absolutely, uh, you know, there, there will be sanctions and retaliation um, by the global uh, community, just as we saw uh, with South Africa. So that's why the South Africans are very different, right? So I think that's why it's so important for us to do the work to make these legal channels of redistributing the land work. Mm-hmm. Because if they don't work, then people are going to result to non-legal channels to get their land back. Right. And that's when we have the retaliation and the sanctions and et cetera, and what mm-hmm. you're talking about. That's when we get into that. We're not there yet in South Africa. And so this is where I remain hopeful that we have to make these legal channels function because, again, as I stated earlier, the the, the stakes are so high. If they don't, people will turn to these illegal methods, and there will be chaos, and there will be retaliation. There will be sanctions. Mm -hmm. And so I, I assume that you really have tremendous faith that there will be serious reforms where blacks in South Africa will get their land. Do, do I hear you correctly? Did you think? Katie, you think I, I'm, I'm, you, I'm, you know, you're asking if I'm hopeful. Will, right. will the legal process work? I'm, I'm doing what I can, and that's mm-hmm. all we all can do. You know, well, I'm not yeah, a genie who can predict the future. But mm-hmm. what I'm doing, one of the, the main things, you know, in my study that I have found, is that although the Land Restitution Act is the you know, again, first act passed by the post-apartheid government, there has been no systematic training for commission officials. You wouldn't believe it, but it's true. So the foot soldiers in charge of implementing 
this mm. very important act have not been given the appropriate training to do the jobs they were given. Right. And this is manifesting in so many of the weaknesses of the land reform program is because there's not proper training. So I formed an alliance with the Land Claims Commission. That's what I do. I'm a professor. So I told her I would help her get together a training program for these commission officials. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's the help I've offered, and she's accepted. We're looking for funds uh, from different nonprofits. So anyone listening to this program, you know, has connections with board and all these said we're me and the commissioner are looking for funds to make this training program happen. Uh, and so that's the best we can all do. We can sit and have a talk shop and talk about how everything's, you know, going to hell and how, you know, everything is so terrible. Or we can get up and figure out what we can do as individuals. This is what I can do. Right. You know, this is in my area of expertise. I can help the commissioner create a training program right. to try and make this process work. And that's what I'm trying to do. Right. How is it going to turn out? I don't know. I can't tell you. Nobody right. can tell you. And if they, they say they can and they give you right. some prediction, right? Mm-hmm. They're lying the truth ain't in them, right? So right. the point is we just have to do the best we can mm-hmm. to really try and, you know, contribute to undoing this, this right. injustice. Well, I want to for- uh, uh, say I commend you for at least bringing this to light because a lot of folks is not bringing this to light. So you're at least making a big step in the right direction by doing this, you know, so I appreciate that. Thank you for your call, Tim. Okay. Thank you for your Have call. Have a nice night. Bye. Let's go to the three uh, two one five area code uh, three seven zero. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Uh, Richard Pelosi. How are you, Richard? Uh, all right, and and I'm glad that everybody is on and uh, and getting this information. Thank you, Elliot, for once again I'm putting up this program together. And, and it is, it's cool. um, but the, the question I have that came to my mind out of discussion point up. How much of the land is productive land? I don't know that what I'm saying then as far as economic productive, like mines, that uh, mines or other industrial um, land that I, I guess one question would be, would be a part of the land reform or is it a part of the land reform? Um, and then the other question, if, if it is, how many um, people in South Africa as far as the skill skill base are capable, or the entrepreneurial base are capable of being able to make transitions to the economic, um, those economic um, land entities that has a global interconnection. And, and are they on this land reform table? Mm-hmm. Well, you put your finger on one of the challenges of land reform in South Africa. Even in those instances, in that eight percent that the government has been able to redistribute they give the land back to these dispossessed individuals and communities and they just don't have the access to credit the uh the networks that they need and there's the, i think by the government's estimates some you know somewhere upwards you know 80 percent fail rate in terms of are the farms that are given back productive you know they're not for lots of different reasons so we're, 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 you know, there's a battle on both ends. There's a battle on giving the land back, and there's a second battle on when the land is given back, making sure that the land remains productive. And so it's a two-front fight, and they're really struggling on both ends of that. And so when you talk about industrial land, I assume you're meaning land, you know, for commercial purposes. You're talking about these issues of productivity, and it's a challenge. Yeah, because that, well, you said you said something in the interview in relationship to 
um, of the political move for land redistribution and how quickly the um, international economic community responded to, to that activity. So I'm assuming that there's land or productive land um, that is a part of the international economic community, European international economic community, that they want to maintain that order of and don't want trust. So that's what I'm trying to get our handle on. We don't really get a lot of information about that. We hear South Africa is a part of, when they talk about Africa. So I can give you one very specific example. Mm-hmm. So although my book deals with urban, we did do one study of one community in Limpopo of the Popella community. And the, the, the Popella community is claiming land that was bought after apartheid, not during apartheid, by a German uh, tropical fruit company. And so this is the kind of linkage that I think you're speaking to is, yes, you know, where yes. does the international community have ownership and where are their voices? Where are they in this story? So the point is they own the land now, and but the land has been, was originally stolen uh, back in 19, I think in 1920s, from this uh, community uh, in uh, that I, we call the Popella community. And so they have to go through the land restitution process just like anybody uh, who owns a particular piece of land. They're not treated differently or they don't get special treatment because they're a foreign company, right? They, they too, because the main thing is in South Africa, when they take land from a current landowner, they're to pay that landowner just compensation. But that just compensation is supposed to start with the market value of the land and then you're supposed to deduct for certain things. You're supposed to deduct for any subsidies given by prior governments. Uh, if they didn't pay the full purchase price uh, initially, it's all listed in the Constitution, the various deductions that, that come from the market value. And that's what they're supposed to be paid. Um, but so, so that's what's supposed to happen in theory. One of the, um, one of the findings of my research is those deductions those equity-enhancing deductions that are so very vital and important for this whole thing to be classified as fair are often not happening. And so what the current landowners are often getting is just some market-related compensation without deducting for subsidies that prior governments gave them. And the reason I was given for this, why this is the case, is because a lot of times the records go missing all of a sudden for, you know, the records about what subsidies were given the apartheid government, if they did one thing well, it was keeping records. And that's very helpful in the restitution process because they kept good records. But sometimes when you, again, a farm is going to be expropriated, all of a sudden the, the records of their subsidies disappear. Um, so, so that's some of that happening. But in other times, to be perfectly honest, the, the commission is just they're not looking for those records because they're overworked, undertrained. Right, and they're not looking for those records to do these equity-enhancing deductions. So it's a really complex issue uh, with with things happening uh, on all sides. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for your call, Brother Rich. Yes, Professor. I've been listening to the conversation, and how I'm going to start off is that personally, I'm not doing anything dealing with the particular situation that's going on in South Africa. You are. 
So I, I commend you on that first of all. I know there's a lot of people that have different theoretical viewpoints of, of what's going on, but it's a difference when someone's actually doing something versus not doing something. So I want to put that out there. That's, that seems to be one of my major pet peeves on, on critical analysis of, uh, of a doer versus a non-doer, different situations. I'm not saying that everyone has to do the same thing, but when somebody is doing something, um, if you don't agree with it, take that on if you don't agree with it or, or else it's just conversation in, uh, in theory, or, or in theory. So what I want to say is what I've been hearing, I heard from Brother Ralph, I heard from Sister Sarah. Um, I, I agree that the systems that are set up, they're not fair to the South Africans that are there in the country, the black, black South Africans that are there in the country. And I also try to parallel what's going on in this country um, with the same situations. Now, my, I just want to know your, your, your thought on what I'm about to pose, uh, propose. Now, the younger people that are impatient, that are willing to fight. Now, we know historically when we come out, fight, boycott, tear up, to show the to show the oppressor or the first the people the group or the system that we're being treated unfairly, we might we get some changes done, but they actually stay in the game longer. The oppressor stays in the game longer than we do. That's just like a a little small time capsule. I want to know what's your thoughts as far as a strategy for the young people to have some sort of thought, if they're going to go out to riot, what is the end game of them rioting? And I'm just putting that out there because even in this country, riots have brought some reforms, but they weren't long-endured riots. The oppressor always outlasts us because we'll do it for a certain time frame, and it's almost like someone that's boxing or someone that's in martial arts. If you're going in angry, the ang- your anger is going to make you tired, it's going to make you winded, and you're not going to be able to outlast the person who's going into this thing thinking of where they want to go. And I just want to get your opinion on it. Yeah, I, I just don't think, again, rioting is the answer. We have to be strategic, right? We, ha- it has to be, we have to be uh, strategic. There are forms of protest that are productive, uh, that, that are, are not exhausted in this situation. And so, you know, I think it is. I mean, and again, rioting is is is, is, is often, you know, it's explo- ex- emotional explosion is not what we need here. We don't need a more emotion. We need more strategy. And uh, that would be my my response to that: less emotion, more strategy. And when you talked about the deification of leaders, I thought that was a very great point you made. What what can we do now in South Africa and even in this country to 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 propel new leadership or new younger people coming into you know coming into different things that 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 need to be done? What what can be done that because you know a lot of our younger people don't know about our cultural icons, but what it is what I do not see them being taught is that we've had so many cultural icons, known and unknown. It's just that what should be taught is read, study, 
and apply, which you can do now. I just want to know what your feedback and thoughts are about that. On, uh, what was that? Say that one more time. What's the, what when, you, when, when you were talking about the. Right, the de uh, deifying the leaders. Yeah, deifying the leaders. What can mm -hmm. we do? Because I see that still goes on now. Right, and, and, right, and, got it. Yeah. I yes, good. I got it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, great, uh, great question. So, I, I think it's just about again, it's about complexity, and it's about telling our his the full history, right? The moment you you think that you know people think that Martin Luther King, it was all about Martin Luther King, we lost the game. That's an incorrect historical, right? It, it, and that's where the deification comes from. It comes from thin histories, where we we say it was one person that did X, Y, and Z. That's an incorrect historical fact that we need to move beyond. So I think that, you know, we're going to move away from this tendency to deify leaders. It's about telling thick histories, accurate histories, right? That's, that, that's the only way to counteract that tendency of deifying leaders is with, is, is with history, thick history. Thank you. You know, uh, we're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation, and you can join this conversation, too, at 215-253-7263. That's 215-253-7263. Professor Bernadette Atuhene is with us this evening. The book, We Want What's Ours. We'll be right back. And if people want more information, they can go to the website, www.wewantwhatsours.com. Oh, I'm going to get you to say, you're going to say that several more times before you leave, Professor. <laughs> we'll be right okay. back. Okay. tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley.
same brothers from a long time ago. We was talking about television and doing it on the radio. What we did was to help our generation realize they got to get out there and get busy because it wasn't going to be televised. Because we got respect for your rappers and the way they freeway in. But if you're going to be teaching folks things, be sure you know what you're saying. Older folks in our neighborhood got plenty of know-how. Remember, if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be out there now. And I ain't coming at you with no disrespect. All I'm saying is that you damn well got to be correct. Because if you're going to be speaking for a whole generation, and you know enough to try and handle their education, be sure you know the real deal about past situations and ain't just repeating what you heard on the local TV station. Sometimes they tell lies and put them in a truthful disguise. But the truth is, that's why we said it wouldn't be televised. They don't know what to say to our young folks, but they know that you do. And if they really knew the truth, why would they tell you? The first sign is peace. Tell all them gun-toting young brothers that the man is glad to see us out there killing one another. We raised too much hell when they were shooting us down, so they started poisoning our minds and trying to jerk us all around. And then they tell us they got to come in and control our situation. They want half of us on dope and the other half in incarceration. If the ones they want dead ain't killed by what they instigated, they can put some dope on the brother's body and claim it was drug-related. Tell them drug-related means there don't need to be no investigation, or at least that's the way they're going to play it on the local TV station. All your nine millimeter brothers, give them something to think about. Tell them you heard that this is the new word. They got to work that stuff out. But somehow they feel in the wrong way with a gun in their hands. They feeling real independent, but they just pulling contracts with a man. Five and five will tell you it's hopeless out there on the avenue. But if they really knew the truth, why would they tell you? And if they look at you like you're insane and they start calling you scarecrow and say you ain't got no brain or start telling folks that you suddenly gone lame or that white folks have finally clocked your game, or worse yet, implying that you don't really know, that's the same thing they said about us uh, a long time ago. Young rappers, one more suggestion before I get out of your way, but I appreciate the respect you give me and what you got to say. I'm saying protect your community and spread that respect around. Tell brothers and sisters they get down, because we're terrorizing our old folks when we brought fear into our homes. And they ain't got to hang out with the senior citizens. Just tell them, damn it, leave the old folks alone. And we know who ripping off the neighborhood. Tell them that BS has got to stop. Tell them you're sorry they can't handle it out there, but they got to take the crime off the block. And if they look at you like they think you're insane or start calling you scarecrow thinking you ain't got no brain or start telling folks that you're suddenly gone lame or that white folks have suddenly co-opted your game. Or worse yet, saying that you really don't know. That's the same thing they said about me a long time ago. And if they tell folks that you finally lost your nerve, that's the same thing they said about us when we said Johannesburg. But I think you young folks need to know that things don't go both ways. You can't talk respect on every other song or just every other day. What I'm speaking on now is the raps about the women folks. On one song, she's your African queen, and on the next one, she's a joke. And you ain't said no words that I haven't heard, but that ain't no compliment. It only insults to eight people out of ten and questions your intelligence. Four-letter words or four-syllable words won't make you a poet. It will only magnify how shallow you are and let everybody know it. And if they look at you like they think you're insane or they call you scarecrow thinking you ain't got no brain or start telling folks that you suddenly gone lame or that the white folks have finally co-opted your game or you really don't know, they said that about me a long time ago. If they finally start telling people that you lost your nerve, that's what they said about Johannesburg. You ain't insane. You have got a brain. 
haven't gone lame. You have got your game. Remember, keep the nerve. Keep the nerve. Keep the nerve. Keep the nerve. We're talking about peace. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening, and we're joined in conversation this evening with author, professor of law, filmmaker, and activist, Professor Bernadette Atuhene, the book, We Want What's Ours. Professor Atuhene, and you can join this conversation, too, in uh, the, the, the time we have left with Professor Atuhene, which is about another 20 minutes. Uh, you can join this conversation at 215-253-7263. That's 215-253-7263. Professor Altuhani, you know, we talked earlier. Uh, oh, boy. We must have lost her. I guess she'll call back here because we lost her before. Yeah, I don't see her earlier. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, she'll, I hope she'll call back. Um, interesting conversation that we had with her and the work that she's doing on the ground there, the documentary that she did, uh, the book that was written. It's a, it's a, it's a strange situation going on there because we can see some of the same dynamics that Europeans have used and strategies that they use against us here in this country that they right. use over there. I wanted to ask her about the, um, because she mentioned that uh, a lot of the land that the people are going back to now are being occupied by middle class blacks that have built homes, mm-hmm. so we can see some of the same similar strategies pitting one against the other, uh, uh, blacks with some means, looking down against blacks with, with hardly any means. Uh, some of these blacks are going back to try to retrieve land that was lost. So it's it's almost like uh, what Dr. King mentioned when he talked about the uh, that we need a radical change of values. You know, some of our people, and I'm dealing with here because I don't know about in South Africa, but beside what I see or from what I hear from, some of our guests that have on the ground in certain situations like uh, Brother Obi Bona or even this, the uh, professor tonight. You know, what we see here, a lot of our people have adopted because we've been uh, involved with Europeans so long as former chattel slave masters. A lot of our people have adopted European values. Uh, they might not realize it, but the things that Europeans strive for when they came here, they wanted money they wanted possessions they didn't care how they got it that was a european mindset and some of our people have adopted that same mindset where they will oppress their own they don't care what they do to achieve what i'm gonna get mine that type of stuff that's not that was not our cultural values if we start going back to our own culture and our own values we'll start seeing that a lot of the stuff that some of our people are doing has nothing to do with us but everything to do with somebody else. But we've been so far removed from that, we have to really, like, learn what that is, Elliot. And, and you know, and, and I wanted to ask the professor also, like, there's... And you, you got to watch propaganda, too. I mean, you really have to watch propaganda. And since, and since she does have her feet on the ground there, she knows a lot about that. There is it's coming out now that... It came out, it was a report that came out of Sierra Leone. It was another report that came out of Ghana that were saying that some of the black South Africans now are killing black immigrants from Africa over jobs. Um, and 
So we got to watch the propaganda. I don't, you know, and I, I forgot to ask the sister that, but uh, that's just, it's, it's that crab in the barrel mentality. Like, you know, the, the envy runs deep in our, in, our, in our community. Jealousy runs deep in our community. Hatred runs deep in our community. I mean, it's, it's almost like the Stockholm Syndrome, man. And, uh, you know, now they would tell you about hating on a politician that we voted in the office to do something. I mean, come on, if, if we vote, if, if, if we vote for a politician, we expect something out of that politician. For the politician to turn his back on us, then he should be ridiculed or something. You know what I mean? But, you know, I'm talking about grassroots organization. Some of those things have to be addressed. I'm telling you. And so when she said that the black folk in South Africa, she she said that. I mean, it only it was really brief, but some you got to get through certain black folk just to do what's right, and and you got to be careful with those black folk that's in our communities because that you know the, the Stockholm syndrome runs deep, bro. And just like uh, Nat Turner found out, Denmark Vesey found out. Like a lot of our ancestors from the past found out, you got to be careful with your own people, <laughs> your own people. So, um, no, I, you know, it's deep. It's it's really deep, man. And um, I hope the sister calls back because I did want to ask her about that. They're saying now also there was a report that's coming out of Sierra Leone that some of the tribes down there in South Africa, well, no, not only that, but some of the... Uh, whites down in South Africa are forming militia groups to start killing off Africans. So this is a lot of stuff that's coming out of South Africa, and I wish the sister was still yeah, here. Well, you, so could... you, you know that those things are, will eventually start to happen, if not happening already, because, and, and she basically said that if they don't get this thing right with this new uh, 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 initiative that they're putting forth again to try to get these people's claims addressed, some of our brothers and sisters' claims addressed, that uh, violence is at the door. I mean, you can see it clearly. I, I wanted her to ask about the, how do the people on the ground feel about Zimbabwe, which is their neighbor, and what has been happening. So this is, this is I mean, you got Europeans involved here, and they have a huge, I ain't talking about a minor, they have a huge financial stake in a lot of stuff they have stolen in South Africa and companies set up and mines that are there and other natural raw materials that they control those companies. Uh -huh. So they're not, they don't plan to give those things up, just uh, just give them over to, to black people to control. Yeah. They're not giving that up without a fight. So, it, you know, the sister's trying to work through other means because that's uh -huh. a profession. Uh -huh. And and I, I do agree with her about an educational piece that's necessary for a lot of our people. Because if you had a large segment of our people in South Africa, the same as here, that had been exposed to substandard education and what she considered Bantu education there, then they do need an educational piece so they can know how to, to, uh, to respond to these people and to fight. Because, you know, it, 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 that comes along with it, a, yeah, a mental you know fight and sometimes a physical fight. But did you know about the, uh, the Bantu education, what it was there to, uh, to implement? It just wanted to te teach our people how to be factory workers, mine workers, and stuff like that. Well, similar to, hey, listen, yeah, similar same, to here. Same thing here. 
Yeah, similar to here. Yep, same thing here. So, teach our people how to work in the factories and, and things like that when they were coming from uh, uh, doing that great migration. It was a, a lot of factories in in the north and in these major cities. That's not here anymore. Hey, brothers, uh-huh. I, I like to say something. When you Ralph had Ralph had basically hit it earlier. Mm-hmm. Same things are going over there, basically going on over here in the United States. Most definitely. Yep. When she talked about the urban piece, instead of looking out, you know, and, uh, you know, outside. You know, we've had a great amount of urban city-owned property and land taken from African Americans, historically mm-hmm. in this country. Mm-hmm. And there were riots. It wasn't any long-term rioting or fighting. That's the only. I'm just looking at it from a historical vantage point of like almost like lessons learned. I'm not saying that certain things can't be done, but I wouldn't tell any young person that the strategy is for long-term. You're just going to throw. You're going to shoot up. You're going to smash without having an end game. That's just the only thing I'm talking about. I understand where they're coming from, but when we've seen the riots that happened before. We've seen the devastation to our communities, and then 20, 35, or 40 years long, we're still talking about the same problems right now. Mm-hmm. So the same problems you've seen in Baltimore, I'm going to give it as an example, it's the same problems that what happened when they were riding 30 or 40 years ago. It's no difference. So I'm not saying that, you know, what I, what I hear from a lot of people they're like, rah, 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 go ahead and do that. But they're not willing to tell a young person or somebody that's older that's doing that and engaging that behavior that in order for that to work, this has to be a long, drawn-out plan of rioting, of, of, of hitting them from different, different areas. I'm not just talking about the physical piece, the thinking piece, the strategy, this has to be a long, drawn-out process because our oppressors, they plan 15, 5, 10, 15, 20, 35, 40, 50 years out of what they plan to see for themselves and their children. Well, Red, you're right because even with the uh, thing, I first started hearing about eminent domain back in the 80s, and now you're starting to see eminent domain you could have a home, live in it. If this, the city or the state said that that area is blighted, they could basically kick you out of your home and take it. And, 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 and it's completely legal. It's called eminent domain. And that's been on the books since um, it, 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 it came around the 80s. I, I remember when uh, Atlantic City, when they started moving the folk out of Atlantic City and building all those casinos. And they did it under eminent domain. So now it's coming to the urban city, and you see them kicking people out of their homes, raising taxes, doing all these things, raising the gas rates. And what they're doing, developer comes in, buy those properties for cheap, and resells the same thing except for a higher a price. So that was a plan thirty, almost 30 years ago. So you're right. You you have to have a long drawn out plan. But some of these plans have been on the books, man. Before and some of the plans never change. We just don't see it. 
Yeah, but Ralph, too. But what I'm what I'm talking about, you and I have been out to separate events in the city, right? Right. With people protesting, right? Right. What we were there for is that same issue going on right now? Same issue. Same issue going on. So all I'm saying is I'm not saying there's anything wrong with going out and doing that, but if we're not willing to there's so many issues that we are that we have to deal with with the black black people. And I think as far as strategy, if we learn how to stay in certain lanes. Right. And, and, and when we stay in that lane, to do it for a, a, a long period of time, not when it tickles your fancy, oh, I'm doing this now, then I'm hopping over here to do this because this is a new thing. Okay, um, if we talk about gentrification, gentrification, I see it around me. I used to be in New York. I'm seeing it in Philadelphia. But I, that's not where my heart is, right? To deal with uh-huh. that. I'm dealing right. with different other issues. So right. I go and support, but I'm not going to give you an example. I'm not going to come into the meeting, try to take over the meeting of what I say is wrong and what they should do, and then leave to go over to, to my thing. Is I want to come to be supportive. And I think the issue is that we, we have all the mechanisms that we need. I just don't think we support them enough. Like, let me give you an example. I the think system. you're talking about organization. Yeah, We're exactly. Organize. Organize, and if and, and and the people who are are organized, we have people that want to come in. Our own people. I'm not talking about white people. Want nope, to come I in and, and cause chaos and confusion, and, and nothing gets done. So all I'm talking about is we have enough people to that we need to go to, but we don't support. I'm going to give you like the mindset of Carter G. Woodson. We have black lawyers. We have yep. black physicians, right? We have black engineers. Do we support those that really are concerned about the issues, the problems, and the resolutions to problems for African Americans? I will say in a whole, no. If you have a lawyer that you know that is willing to put himself out there for us, do we have enough uh, people in the community that's willing to get that person business? And I'm not talking about business for when you have an emergency or you have a situation, something happened to your person. No, that you're funneling money for them to be able to have a bigger practice and deal with the issues that are our issues, well, whether it's well, our children or not our children. Do we have enough people to support that? That's what. That's my point, Ralph. Yeah, and you know what? I, I, that's why it's so important what Brother Klingman and Brother Anglafika are trying to do because once that gets organized, once we get funding, we can have some lawyers represent us. You know what I mean? So I, I think that's very important what those two brothers are trying to do. Okay. You, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, so I, 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 I Yeah, yeah that, uh, you know, I've, I've wrote uh, uh, Anafika emails saying, yeah. like, look, let's get some dues. Let's get this thing off the road. Let's do something. You know yeah. what I mean? So I understand. I understand. Uh, exactly. uh, 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 and my last, my last point, and I'll I, I let yourself and Elliot uh, uh, go to the next level with our next guest about to be coming on. When I talk about in my emails, when I do stuff I'm posting on Facebook, when I write different pieces, I one of my major things that I always put out there, I don't know what everyone is doing, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But what I, what I can say, we're not doing enough. I'm talking about the black man and the black woman. If the shoe don't fit, then don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying is what I noticed, 
is that brothers and sisters that always want to put you to task about what you're doing or what you're not doing or what you can do better, when you question them, hey, brother, sister, all right, you don't like that, what are you doing? Uh Or, 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 Or let's start something up that combat that. You'll get it. My my personal experience is you get a lot of excuses. It doesn't uh-huh. mean that they never done anything before. I'm not saying that, but I'm talking about whatever it is, particular whatever particular situation that they don't like. You have a lot of people that hide behind the shadows on social media. Uh-huh. They never come out of real life and do anything, right? You have people that hide behind emails. They never come out. Real life is on the street. Interacting uh-huh. with your brothers and sisters. If you're not interacting with your brothers and sisters, now I agree with you, Ralph. You can't interact with every brother and sister because every brother and sister ain't on the same page. Sometimes you have to bring them up. You have to be patient with them. But I think it's too many of us that complain, criticize, and we don't have a historical track record of even a hundred yards of doing anything for us. I'm not talking about contributions are fine. That's great. But what are you doing as a stakeholder for your community and for your family? And I'm not talking about for one day, systematically for a long period of time. There has Mm -hmm. to be something that I think every black man or black woman, whether it's your trade, whether there's some sort of knowledge base that you have, that you need to give back to your family, Mm -hmm. especially your children and your community. And and it ain't always got to be about money. I do a lot of things. And as doing, I'm doing it free. Mm-hmm. And I, and you know what I think? I think if I if I was with, if I was with, if I was about charging money, I actually think more people will come out. Because a lot of times, our folks, when you're getting something for free, they think it's a game and angle. Ain't no game and angle. This is what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be giving back to our children. We're supposed to be modeling the behavior that we want our children to see. You know, when they grow up, that they need to be active and doing something other than playing basketball. Other than uh-huh. playing football or whatever else, those are all good. But you have to do something in the area where you live, for your uh-huh. family, and for the people that are in your community. That's what it's about. Community doing something. I don't think we have enough of us do- putting that out there. Like I-, I would challenge you, Ralph and Elliot too, and I think Elliot knows this. The people that comp- that, that that are critical or complain, ask them what are they doing. Uh-huh. And I- I'm just I'm just interested in what kind of response back. It doesn't mean that. It could be minuscule what they're doing, but I just want, I always, uh, what I've been doing is questioning, all right, brother, what are you doing in your daily life outside of just working? Or how you living. And how you live. Well, not so much. Okay. How, how, I mean, sometimes. Okay. How, okay. How, how are you living? Is a, and you is know a, what? Is how a, you live. Is a, is a, a, a good question to ask a person. Yeah. How, how you, you living could, 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 could go anywhere. But my, my, my thing is, look, you don't have to believe the way I believe. But my thing is, when we walk down the road together, I'm going to see what you're about. I'm uh-huh. going to see if you're a thief. Uh-huh. I'm going to see if, you're, if, you, if you want my woman, you know. If I'm, I'm going to see if you're money hungry when we walk down the road. But what I see with us, we don't walk down the road with brothers and sisters because this brother is a Muslim. This brother is a Christian. This brother or sister is Buddhist. We won't even walk around. The Buddhist black man or woman, the the Christian black man or woman, the Muslim black man or woman, all have one common thread that the open enemy can't stand them because of the color of their skin, 
all those three groups, all their children, if not their their children or relatives, they know someone has been locked up, right, unfairly, right? Mm. All their children are not getting the best educational uh, uh, um, uh, system for them. Yep. These are all all three different people, and we let we let our oppressor mix us up with foolishness like that, where we won't even want to work together. I know there's people that in the same belief systems that will rob and steal from each other. I've dealt with people that don't believe like me; they ain't stealing from me. If they say they're gonna do something, they hold their they hold their word. They show up. If they're not gonna show up, they have respect enough to say, "Hey, brother, sister, something came up," and they call you. Let me, let me say this before uh, before the 9 o'clock hour. I want to thank the listeners on the Black Talk Radio Network stream that heard the program this evening. Uh, we'll probably go a little bit over, and I, but I want to thank the listeners, and they'll be able to catch the remainder of the program on podcast uh, later on. Uh, I guess didn't get back on. Sometimes emergencies come up. But you can, if you're interested in a book and the documentary, you can go to We Want What's Ours. Just Google We Want What's Ours. Or Google Professor Bernadette Atuhene. That's A T U A H E N E, A T U A H E N E. Professor Bernadette Atuhene at We Want What's Ours, and uh, you can get the book and the documentary for our guest this evening. Again, I want to thank the listeners on the Black Talk Radio stream. We'll probably go a little bit over this evening. Um, we're expecting a little update on some of the uh, uh, folks that was in California at an event uh, for the uh, One Million Conscious Black Voters and Contributors. And also, uh, we had a person that was on the ground in Baltimore yesterday and, and to, to get a little update. Let's see what's going on. 252 two, area code, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Edward from Greenville, North Carolina. Hey, Edward. How you doing, sir? All right. Good evening to everybody. Uh, I didn't catch every bit of the program, um, but I, you, you guys are making some good comments, uh, conversation among yourself. But I was listening to the uh, callers with Sarah and uh, the caller after her, and I just wanted to say as constructive criticism, not attacking anybody, but uh, I, I respectfully disagree with what Rachel was saying earlier uh, to the standpoint, and you all can correct me if I'm wrong, but when Rachel said earlier, and he echoed it again just now, that, you know, uh, it, when people are critical, he asks themselves, what are they doing? Now, I get that. So hear me out. I get that. But, uh, Elliot, you yourself made this, this statement earlier, and this is why I respectfully disagree. Uh, you made the statement earlier that the callers, uh, the two callers, at least that I'm referring to, Sarah and the one after, after uh, her, who he asked the lady several questions. You had even already said that nobody is, atta- is attacking her. You, you said that. And so I respectfully disagreed because it came across. Now, I get it. Uh, Reggie explained it a little better just a little while ago. But the first time, Reggie, I think it came across, at least to me listening, as if to say, why are these people calling and criticizing? And I think as a listening audience, we have a right to say, hey, I disagree with what the guest said or what you guys said or whatever, and I think uh-huh. it just ought to be left at that. If you, so if, if you I miss something, if, help if, me if, out. If, if you would have listened to me starting off, I said at the beginning that I don't really have any strong disagreements with, with Ralph 
and what Sarah says. I actually share their sentiments. That's how I started yeah, that. Yeah, I heard that. So, I, so, I did so, hear so, that. so, so, if I'm saying that, then Sarah's one of the callers, and the other caller Tim that called had the same sentiment as her. But I started off stating that I don't have a strong disagreement with that. I think that was laying it out a little bit. That 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 I don't. I'm just putting okay. something out as a point okay. of reference. But I do. But yeah. I do. I do understand where you're coming from. If I came across that way, I, that that wasn't my intention. But I appreciate your okay. response. All right. Like Thank I you said, so much. You explained it better. She explained it better the second time around. But it just came across uh, that way. And I was just a listener. I had obviously I hadn't called in then. Oh, no problem. But, uh, I, no problem. I, I, I got you. I could, you know take, I could take that. Hey, I could hey, take Edward. constructive criticism. It's good. Edward, and I always value the opinions of other people, even if I disagree with it or not. You know what I mean? Just like some of our right. guests. Just like some of our guests. If I disagree, I'm going to let them know I disagree. You know, right. and, it's, and it's in a respectful way. You know what I mean? Right. There you go. So, there so, you go. Yeah, I, I, man, this is opinion. You know, everybody has opinions. So you, you know, know right, some, right. You know what? Uh, let me let me uh, hold on a second, Edward. Uh, Professor Atuene. Uh, uh, we... Hi, this is Sean from DC. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know we lost her again, but uh, okay. Yes. Uh, hold on one second, Sean. Yes. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Great. Were you uh, in, in in Baltimore yesterday? I was. I was told to call by um, Amasika Jayuko. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, hold, hold, just stay with us, Sean. Um, okay, I'll see you on standby. Okay, Edward. Yes. Listen, I want to thank you for your contribution. Was that, that that's all you wanted to say? You had one more thing. Yeah, basically that was it. Like I said, initially it came across wrong. I think. Okay. But uh, it, 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 you know, you, you guys, I enjoyed more so what you were saying among yourselves the last few minutes. <laughs> well, thank you as always. All right. Thank you as All always right. for your call, Edward. All right. All right. Bye-bye. 215 Area Code, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Hey, Brother Elliot. How you doing, good brother? How are you, sir? I'm doing fine. Hey, Brother Ralph and Brother Reg. How y'all brothers doing tonight, man? Brother Joe. It's good to have all y'all three brothers on tonight, man. That's good. Yeah. Man. I, I just want to say I was listening to the sister, you know, from just talking about stuff after I tune in, you know, right near the, near the like the middle of the show, and she she was coming up with some good information and stuff. No doubt about that. Because you, as you as you well know, dear brothers, the struggle that our people face in South Africa is, is, is not much different than the struggle our people face here in America, which is pretty much white supremacy. You know what I mean? Any way you slice the cuts and dice, white supremacy. You like when you, brother Ellie mentioned about the situation in Baltimore with a young man getting killed by the police. I mean, this is like. Commonplace now, you know. People clearly are under attack in this country. You know, I mean, you, you know, you we face it all: driving while black, walking while black, shopping while black. You know, I mean, you know. So we we face uphill battle, and 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 this is why, like I told you, brother Elliot, this this so-called congressional black caucus that supposedly represent us. I mean, that's their disgrace. I mean, if you notice through all these here shootings and stuff that has happened and murdered about people, whether it's been Trayvon Martin, whether it's been. Uh, uh, the young brother in Baltimore, the brother in South Carolina, you hardly have a you hardly have a damn whipper out of that, black, that congressional black caucus. Now here they supposed to be. Think about this, brothers. They supposed to be there representing black. They call themselves the Congressional Black Caucus, which means they supposed to be representing the interests of black people. But they might as well call themselves the 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 the, 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 the Congressional Black Israeli Conference because they they, they catered to the Zionists and the, the Jews and stuff. They they basically kissed Netanyahu's ass when he was here. 
you know what I mean, when he spoke here back here through a couple months ago. I mean, they, these people are disgraced. I mean, how can you sit there and watch your people being slaughtered out in the street by, by racist law enforcement and stuff, and you don't open up your mouth, you don't say a word, but yet you want black people to vote every time to keep your sorry ass in office. And, 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 but see, a lot of that is our fault because we don't hold these people accountable. We had we go right along to get along. You know, that's why when you played that clip, Brother Elliot, a few weeks ago with that brother from the BlackAgendaReport.com, when he lambasted the black Congressional Black Caucus, and, and more of our people should be doing that. They, they are disgraced in this life, and they're disgraced in the next life. You know? <laughs> Joe, as always, I want to thank you for your contribution, man. Hey, thank you, brother. Man, you, y'all keep, brother, keep doing what y'all doing. I know the weather's getting warmer, and y'all be bringing it to the black farmers soon, so I'm looking forward to that, you know. Thank All you. Right? Thank you for your call, Joe. You're welcome, my brother. Peace. Sister Sean? Yes, this is she. How are you? Fine, how are you? Great, great. Um, I've seen in the email that you were going down, uh, uh, going up because you're in Washington, going up to Baltimore to uh, to uh, give out some literature on their one million conscious black voters and contributors, um, and you were up there on, on the ground in Baltimore. Talk about. Uh, say that again. No, no, go ahead. Yes, I was. I was there, mm-hmm. live and in person. And hold on, hold on, Sister Sean, you went up on via uh, motorbike. Is that correct? Well, my. Yes, yes. My my husband at the last minute, um, I was uh, embarking on this adventure kind of singly, and um, so he at the last minute decided to join me, so I, I kind of coined it as boots and pumps on the ground, okay. of which I knew that he would eventually eventually kind of cave in to what I was doing, because we've been busy on our Saturdays, and we kind of look forward to a little bit of rest. But okay. we had to have a little bit of unrest. Okay. For Saturday. I want to I want to give kudos out to your husband for 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 helping out also. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So I, I guess if I could just you know give you a little bit about you know my experience there it was it was definitely wonderful. It was definitely populated. It was packed. People were invigorated. Uh, people showed up. Um. The biggest thing in, in, in my purpose was, of course, not only to kind of support the brother who was uh, killed, his spine broken, and from what I understand, his throat uh, voice box was crushed as well. Um, not only to support his cause and his family, but also to have an opportunity to promote, to promote the One Million Conscious Black Voters uh, organization. And... What I really wanted to be able to do was to not only do that and mingle with folks there, but to also have an opportunity to speak to the people with a defined kind of a premise that we need to take things from uh, what I call protest to progress. And um, taking things from progress to progress for me personally, and I thought I would share it with others, <laughs> is joining the One Million Conscious Black Voters and Contributors campaign. So I went out there with that as kind of like my uh, my charge, mm-hmm. and I didn't really, you know, know how people would receive it. But I, I tell you, I talked with folks uh, as I, uh, now let me just tell you a bit about the march. Now this particular march that I attended, there was a lot of other folks there, Black Lives Matter, other organizations, but 
the way that I kind of got in tune to like a path and any kind of structure in the market was, was through the uh, Black Lawyers for Justice. Now, the Black Lawyers for Justice, I think that's headed by uh, Malik Shabazz. Yes. He's been very, very active in Ferguson. And with the protesters there, and I think there was a member from Ferguson, Ferguson uh, family was there. Um, and other members from other, you know, people who have had um, hardships with police. So through that organization is how I got pipelined in. So I followed uh, his path, which started at the scene of her arrest, all the way down through the neighborhood through City Hall. Um, as we walked and progressed down that path, what I did was took an opportunity to discuss um, the one in a million black conscious voters campaign is to kind of explain to them that we are trying to um, take control of our politics first and to vote as a block as black people significantly uh, with our demanding our wants and needs uh, similar to other organizations like Latino organizations, um, gay and lesbian organizations, and all of these other organizations that are getting things except us. And, and I tried to explain that, you know, through the, the, the regular political parties, uh, independent, Republican, Democrat, I don't see blacks uh, getting what they want. And they agreed. They wholeheartedly agreed. And they, they spoke with me. They were happy about it. They wanted more information about it. And um, they seem to be really, really in tune to that because I do believe that they feel as if they were getting something from a political standpoint from the president um, because he's, quote-unquote, a black president. But I think they're seeing in the second term and in the years that we've been under his uh, guidance that they, they've really gotten nothing specific. So that was just really, really surprising to me to see how in tune and invigorated they were. I didn't get turned away. Um, I didn't get uh, people were literally coming after me for more, you know, information on this new all-black voting block, the one million um, conscious black voters campaign. So we, of course, promoted to sign up at IamOneOfAMillion.com, and uh, we kind of plugged that in over and over again. And hopefully they, uh, hopefully they respond and actually follow up and, and do that. Yeah, you know that kind of uh, 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 dovetails on something that uh, Brother Reggie was talking about about ten minutes ago about uh, you know our people uh, having a plan and working a plan because the people that are against us, the enemies of our people, have plans. They don't just react; they have plans, and they plan uh, what they intend to do and to, to counteract our plans. So we have to plan. I think the uh, One Million Conscious Black Voters and Contributors is an excellent preemptive plan on how we need to approach this voting process uh, to, uh, to garner money for other projects among ourselves and to garner unity and to organize our people. It's an excellent vehicle to do it. Uh, I'm glad that the brothers had the persistence because they've been involved in other projects. Brother Amafika and Brother Klingman have been involved in other projects in the past uh, trying to get things going. Uh, they were involved in 2005 in Detroit with Dr. Claude Anderson and several others to try to get an economic plan going in Detroit, and they were rebuffed by uh, right. 
black elected right. officials. So I'm glad that the men had stick to They didn't just give up, even though they're older men. They didn't just say, oh, well, you know, I did my part. You did, You take it now. I'm going home and sit and relax. They 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 kept their, their shoulders to the wheel, and other people are getting involved. So I'm glad that this thing is is uh, is getting legs and taking off. Yes, and, and they may be old men, but their plans still have some fire. That's what I kind of learned um, when I went out there. And then in the discussions, another thing is that um, kind of to, to 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 catch their attention, I, I focused on the voting and the politics piece, but I also took the opportunity when I could to say that this is just a first step. And then that's when I went into um, the 10 points that we have. In other words, the specific, you know, demands and the specific things that we'll ask for initially. In other words, that we're going to transition this, this, this I am one of a million.com is not just politics, it's empowerment. Okay. It's politics first because that's kind of like the world and the game that we're in. We've got to, You've got to navigate and win on the field that we're on, if you will. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's a secondary component, second, third, and the secondary and third components is, um, you know, economic empowerment. And we talk about black economic activism. And uh, and I was able to point to in Baltimore, I don't know what the, the geographics of the area, but Baltimore is very dilapidated. There's... Uh, <laughs> boarded up homes every two or three houses and you know I talked about you know how you can empower yourself through you know diff different business ventures where you know you all be able to buy all of these houses for yourself and we could take this one group and use the group um, as an economic group if we self aggregate and keep our money and our dollars you know within one another and one of our uh, planks is uh, the black economic activism mm -hmm. And, and that means to support, you know, black businesses and all of these things that we're doing and these protests and things that we, you know, go out. And I, I think the example, if you go to the, the website, IamOneOfAMillion.com, it'll say how, you know, for police, you know, 7-Elevens and different, you know, police can, police officers can go to a 7-Eleven and get a free donut every day and, and do these things every day. And we need to do things like if things happen, tragedies, tragedies, such as, you know, for example, uh, Trayvon Martin. Um, unfortunately, his death, um, you know, was over Skittles and Arizona's iced tea. And for some reason, black folks thought that we should all go out and buy Skittles and Arizona iced tea oh, oh, as a wow. form of symbolism. When, when, if their thinking was straight, you know, it, it, and Skittles wouldn't even do a comment or give any kind of, uh, you know, any kind of condolences to the family, yet they made millions. All of these black folks going out buying Skittles and iced tea. So we want to use that kind of like as an example. Don't go and buy Skittles and iced tea. One of our points is black economic activism. When something happens to one of your people, take that money and give it to an organization. You know, give it to uh, I am one of a million dot com. Buy a T-shirt. Uh, go to the Harvest Institute. Contribute. Contribute to uh, Black Lives Matter. Contribute to BlackAnonymous.com. Contribute to an organization. Don't go and throw all that money the Skittles and Arizona iced tea, and these people didn't even have the, the decency to, to, to give a condolence to the mother and father of Trayvon Martin. So this is the mindset that we have to, to change, and this is the second phase of I am one of a million.com and the one million conscious black voters and counting is 
It's, it's about politics, but it's going to be more. It's going, about, going to be about economic empowerment. Almost definitely. Hey, Sister Sean, I'd like to ask yes. you a question. This is Brother Reggie. Um, what did you say to the young black people in Baltimore who do not think voting can work for them? or don't n- never uh, taken part of the political process. Uh, what what will be your what was your strategy, or what do you think uh, the message should be to them as far as joining uh, this initiative? Well, let me just tell you honestly, with with my true experience, I had two people turn me down. I talked to young, I talked to old, I talked to what I would call you know, questionable. I even went through, there was a block that I got lost. I kept getting lost from the crowd because I was actually talking, kind of having, an, you know, an exchange and com- conversation with folks and I would lose the crowd. And even though I'm not from there, I had to ask someone, where did all the people go? <laughs> I even found myself in a red light district, you know, where they had, uh, in broad daylight, which is, but that's how Baltimore is. From block to block, you'll have totally different worlds. But, the two people that turned me down was one older lady and I would say a middle-aged man, and they just simply said, I don't vote at all. They just completely removed themselves from the process. But the younger people, I specifically, I did not leave them out. I approached them. I talked to them about it. Nobody expressed to me that they didn't have a willingness to vote. But let me tell you this, and I got this question about three times from three different people. They were concerned. The very first thing they asked me or told me is that I can't can't vote because I I have a felon. That was a big concern, and that's something that I wanted to talk to Brother Amafika about because it, it seemed to be a question that just kept coming up. They seemed to be under the impression, those who are in that condition, that they could not vote because of some past transgression with the law. Mm -hmm. But they wanted to. In fact, I have a video that I have not posted with one of the organizations, and he actually wanted me to start it there and talking about, you know, felonies and voting. But I'm not quite totally expert on that. But what I did advise them is that that is a misconception. And from what I understand, it's based on the state you live in, and all you have to simply do is to call a lawyer and to get your voting privileges reinstated. A lot of us think that just because we have some sort of a record, we automatically cannot vote, which is the case. But the second step to that is you can also get your voting rights reinstated, and you need to call an attorney, uh, get a civil, uh, 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 what you call these uh free attorneys, pro bono attorneys to help you with that or go to the community and get, you know, help with that. So I was getting specific questions from young brothers about not being able to vote because they had felonies. So I think for any organizations that are out there, I think that needs to be addressed because they're under the impression that they cannot vote, but they want to vote. They never said that they did not want to vote. Never. Well, I, listen, I'm glad uh, that the 
that you took the initiative to go to Baltimore to start getting the word out uh, up here in Philadelphia. Uh, Brother Marcus and Brother Richard is having a uh, a meeting. Uh, Reg announced it. Uh, Reg, do that announcement again, too. Go ahead. Yeah, it announced uh, there's going to be a meet and greet at the uh, UNIA building on Cecil B. Uh, Moore Avenue. Uh, it's going to be next Sunday, May 3rd, and it will be from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. So I sent out emails, and I'll be posting on our Facebook page. Yeah, so I'm I'm kind of glad of your work. Uh, it's it's going on up here, spreading to other cities. Uh, it was a brother in California that uh, went to, I think, uh, the sister Rosie Milligan had uh, something going on with Carl Nelson. Um, I don't know exactly the exact location, but I know that it was it was uh, folks on the ground out there. So we can see that things are spreading, and some of our people are being becoming aware that if we're gonna participate in politics and, and we we they take taxes out of our, our paychecks, we we need to hold these people accountable and have a means to do it. Because I mean, we look now, we see uh, that that uh, Hillary Clinton is being pushed in front of the people. And a lot of our people, they don't know. They, that's the first thing in their mind because they're told by uh, whether it's Sharpton or, or other talking heads among black folks that this is our only option. So a lot of our people, that that's where they're going to go. But these people let you know that they don't address none of our issues. In fact, they just had a meeting here in Philadelphia uh, for the uh, the Democratic National Committee which the president attended, which they announced their their platform and uh, said the Democratic Party is going to be the voice of the middle class. Now, if you look in a lot of these uh, major cities, a lot of blacks are not middle class. In fact, during this recession, blacks that were middle class uh, slipped back down to the class below. So a lot of our people are not middle class. So they're letting you know right off the bat they're not going to be making any voice or any overtures or speaking to any issues that directly affect black people. If we don't make these people uh, address these issues, then who is going to? I'm I'm glad that that this initiative came up, this movement, and that there's people getting involved. And I want to thank you for your work, uh, Sister Sean. Anything else uh, that you want to say? Yeah, I I have a question. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Sister Sean. What what attracted you to the I'm a one in a million uh, platform initiative, one in a million conscious black voters and contributors? What 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 uh, attracted you and want you to take part and become involved in this movement? Well, first and foremost was just just my understanding of uh, I would say politics. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not an expert in also economics. I, initially, I was introduced really through Carl Nelson and his show. I've listened to Jim Cleanman for 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 a long time. He's been on and off the air. Um, and Amasika Gayuka, um, he was uh, somewhat new to me, but I was pleased that uh, Amasika and Jim had join forces because I I had an admiration for Jim and his principles and philosophies on economics. He's an economic writer. And then I also learned more about Amatheca and they joined. It kind of brought these two wonderful kind of ideologies 
together, and, and that's what we need in terms of power. We need to understand politics and how to leverage it. And I think that's what's kind of lacking in, in, in my day-to-day activities and exchanges with, with people and with my people. Um, they just simply, you know, don't understand how to leverage political power. And I think that they've been hoodwinked over and over and over again uh, through the Democratic Party. Um, I think it's been it's a difficult separation from that party. You've got people who are just knee-deep and, 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 and dedicated um, to principles um, that, that really aren't coming to bear. And, and I think this is an opportune time because I think people, time in, in life and is everything, in business and life and any type of situation. And I think now is a critical time where people are actually seeing and coming aware that, you know, this is not what we signed up for. We're not getting what we bargained for. And I'm finding that those stubborn folks are open and, and a little more willing to listen. And because they are willing to listen, I think we got to speak to them. And um, I found this organization wonderful because I thought that it met more than one need, not just the political need. That's just a piece of our problems. We as black people have a plethora of problems. And we actually need to prioritize our problems. But I think the first prioritization should be politics, and the second prioritization should be economics. And this platform covers them all. They have a, um, a list of planks. They have 10 planks. And if you go to the website, I'mOneOfMillion.com, to review planks, I believe that they're listed there, but it's not just, um, uh, it's black activism, but it's also um, dealing with the unlawful uh, practices of police. There's a couple of planks there that deals with uh, specifically, and this is what we have to do. We just can't say we hate the police. You know, hating the police has to be kind of drilled down to, okay, what are you going to do to stop them? You have to have specific understanding and, and target specific practices and laws, they're allowing them to do this. And one of the planks is the unlawful uh, stop reporting movement, which was really a surprise to me is that how the police can control an individual's electronic devices like your iPhones and things like that. If you, if you look at the Eric Gardner case, I believe that was a, the chokehold case. That's how they commonly refer to it. The gentleman who recorded that video was sitting in Rikers Island right now. Mm-hmm. And I was floored to, to, to really kind of understand that, but that's even part of my ignorance. That common-day people, like myself, not even understand how these people have the power to put somebody in jail just for simply recording that video. That man is sitting in Rikers Island, from my understanding, right now up in New York City. Uh, and this uh, man uh, should be a hero. He should be and, a hero. And he's accusing them of feeding them rat poison while he's in there, too. And, and none of this stuff is mainstream media. None of but, it. But that's the ignorance, including my own. How many people walking the streets understand that? They're going to work every day thinking this guy's a hero and he's okay. Well, they just threw this man under the bed, under the bus. I mean, he's six feet under. He's behind bars right now. Somebody needs to be rallying behind and fighting him. So how do you change that? How do you stop that? You stop that with specific 
action. And that is one of our specific claims. You've got to support the organizations who are fighting to remove that law. If you don't fight to remove it, in other words, you've got to get down, down into the weeds and stop it. You just can't say, I hate the police, F the police. You know, I heard that yesterday, too. You can't just say that. So if they're doing certain things, you need to specifically brick by brick and don't get overwhelmed. And this is why I'm taking it back. This organization, brick by brick, are tackling specific practices that the police are using against us, one of which I just mentioned, stop the unlawful uh, 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 retrieval and confiscation of our devices. Another point, specific, and this is how you make change. You don't just make change by getting angry at everybody. You get down into the books and the laws and you change it. Requiring law officers to carry misconduct insurance. Similar to what doctors do. If a doctor is supposed to cut off the left leg and they cut off the right, they're getting sued. It's called malpractice insurance. And the family could get something. We want something similar for the police to carry. So when you kill a Trayvon Martin and when you choke hold an Eric Gray, an Eric Gardner, or, or you break a Freddie Gray spine, we're not worried about whether or not a jury, which we know Sometimes the complexion of a jury will automatically tell you the verdict or whether or not that family will get some due compensation for their loss. If they're required to uh, carry insurance for mal, similar to malpractice, something that we coin as misconduct insurance, then we could at least ensure that that family would get some money for their losses rather than having to spend all of these monies on lawyers in a civil lawsuit that a jury may not even go in their favor for. So they done lost their family members, they lost their sons, their daughters, they done spent all these monies on lawyers, and they didn't get it done. So if they carry insurance, you could at least get something off of the insurance policy while you're simultaneously waiting for a jury to go in your favor. But counting on that isn't really a guarantee because we don't know which way a jury is going to go. And historically, it looks like all of the juries in all of these past cases with black men have not gone in our favor, because we know the complexion of the jury. The people on the jury do not look like us. So that's a double, to me, that's a double death, <laughs> because I've lost my son, and I can't get any compensation for it. So that is a specific detail that this organization supports, along with many others. We have a total of 10. Mm -hmm. So this is why I love this organization, because it's not just politics. It's empowerment, and it's dealing with issues that affect the conditions of black people. And it's about consciousness. It's consciousness first in organization for me. Second, because you have to be conscious in order to be able to even select the organization. Yeah, well... So I guess that's my long answer. <laughs> listen, I, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. You know, and, and uh, Brother Amafika and Brother Klingman, they're not, uh, they're not lawmakers. This responsibility that you're talking about should be upon the people that our people elect to lead them. 
I mean, all they do is hold, get out the vote rallies. They don't give the people any specific uh, planks that they need to be pushing, any specific agendas that are black. In all these major cities, unemployment and miseducation is off the hook. Uh, 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 schools closing down. Black unemployment, especially among youth, is double-digit, some of it up around 30, 40, 50 percent. Black men out of work. And, you know, it's no specific targeted agenda that that the, that black politicians are even pushing. So, no, we we got to do something different. We can't have business as usual. That's why I, I'm uh, more than willing and more than proud to be involved with brothers and sisters that are serious about making change. Uh, Sean, I want to thank you for being with us. You know, thank we got to bring you on here as a as a co-host, the brother Reg. I, I know that you. That's right. I know, brother Reg. You wouldn't object to it. You you could seem to you seem to be holding th- seem to hold things down pretty good. Oh uh, yeah, I, I, I'll come. I'll come as my as my role as a rep for uh, the one million voters, and I will co-host with you as their representative exclusively. Hey, Sister Sean, I, I, Sister Sean, I need a I need a fill in when I need a break. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> need a break. That that good energy, that good energy. But I think it's always good to have our women, our sisters, who often get neglected in their part that they play in all our movements historically when they're, you know, part of what we're doing, you know, because it, because we balance each other off, you know, we both need each other. We're the family unit and our women's opinions, their mindset. And a lot of us brothers got to be serious. We don't want our women doing a lot of things because they get organized and they do. And they sometimes outshine us. And I think we don't want that, but I welcome sisters like sister Sean that get on her husband's uh, motorbike and make things happen to get through that traffic and to support this initiative. So we, we value we value your work and your efforts, my sister. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, and, and might I add, I would have to say our work. <laughs> <laughs> Me and him, because we're a couple, and, you know, he makes it happen. He helps you with decisions as well. Oh, well, thank you for being with us. We'll talk soon. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. We'll be right back to wind up the program. tuned in to the black talk radio network for podcasts and live program scheduling visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com all insurance incorporated an african-american owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years located at 231 southeastern road in glenside pa with other offices in germantown and west philadelphia call now for commercial insurance quotes homeowners insurance quotes automobile insurance quotes notary and tax services representing over 15 major a-rated insurance companies offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote call this number 21 
215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. If the Black Lives Matter mobilization is to sustain itself, if it is to go beyond protests against the latest police atrocity and become a full-fledged movement, it must embrace the principle of black community control of the police. The entire history of the United States screams out that black people must define and control the processes by which justice is meted out in their communities. If there is one historical truth that is indisputable in America, it is that black people have never gotten justice from the U.S. criminal justice system, which is why one out of every eight prison inmates on planet Earth is a black American. In the nearly half-century since the Black Panther Party described the police as an army of occupation in black America, we have learned the very painful lesson that inclusion of large numbers of blacks among the ranks of the police does not change the nature of the occupation. Nor does the naming of black police chiefs or the election of black mayors and city councils, and certainly not the election of a black corporate president. In fact, the mass black incarceration regime, which Michelle Alexander calls the new Jim Crow, gains legitimacy through diversity in hiring and the collaboration of the servile black political class. Black cops get jobs, but black people get no justice because the mission of the police remains the same, to contain, control, and terrorize the black community. That's their job, and that will remain the mission of policing in the black community until the community seizes control of the police. Civilian review boards are not the equivalent of community control by any measurement. Most are worthless. At best, such boards respond to police crimes after the fact and serve at the pleasure of politicians who are ultimately answerable to wealthy white people. So, what would black community control of police look like? The Black is Back Coalition for Social Justice, Peace, and Reparations will hold a national conference in St. Louis, Missouri on Saturday, April 18th and Sunday, April 19th to examine this crucial issue. If black people fail to define for themselves the functions and obligations of policing in black communities, then others will continue to do it for us. The choice is simple. Either black people discipline, direct, and hire and fire the police in their community, or the police continue to beat, kill, and terrorize black people in their own neighborhoods. 
The National Conference on Black Community Control of Police will be held at the Jannon Academy at 3625 North Garrison Avenue in St. Louis. Community organizers and activists from greater St. Louis and across the country will get down to the serious business of changing relationships of power on the streets of black America and advancing the cause of black self-determination. For more information and to register for the conference, go to the Black is Back Coalition website. That's blackisbackcoalition.org for the National Conference on Community Control of Police, April 18th and 19th in St. Louis, Missouri. For Black Agenda Radio, I'm Glenn Ford. On the web, go to blackagendareport.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. And uh, before we wind things down this evening, I want to thank everybody for being with us. Thank our guests, uh, Professor Arthur, Professor of Law, Filmmaker and Activist. Professor Bernadette Atuhene was with us. Her book, We Want What's Ours, is out for the purchase. And like I said, you can go to, um, you can Google her name. She has a website. We want what's ours. You can Google her name, uh, Bernadette Atuhene. That's A T U A H E N E. Again, that's Bernadette A T U A H E N E. Just Google it or, or, or just type in We Want What's Ours and it will take you to her site. The book and the documentary is available, and I want to thank her for being with us. She stayed with us for a little over an hour and a half, but sometimes a uh, family emergencies come up and person has to leave i wanted her to stay a few more minutes longer but it's no problem again i want to thank sister sean from the one million conscious black voters and contributors for being with us brother reg any final uh words no sir again i want to thank everybody for being with us this evening lively discussion as always and we'll be back next week lord willing to continue on this path towards an awakening peace if you're driving through the country on a lazy afternoon or you're watching your children playing after school
today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.